As you wish, the man in black, inconceivable. These are some of the phrases that are coming out of one of my favorite movies ever as a child. And even though I say that Top Gun is my favorite movie, it's quite possible that I've seen The Princess Bride far more than I have seen Top Gun, Days of Thunder, Willow, Karate Kid. I'm not sure. It's either Karate Kid or Princess Bride. But this week we're going to talk about one of my favorite movies of all time, the fantasy film starring the guy whose last name I can never pronounce. Is it Ewell's? Ewell's? Ewell's. I always thought it was. Carrie Ewell's? It's a British name. Carrie Elwes is what we said in America. We're talking about the Princess Bride. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who, you know what, doesn't mind seeing Christmas stuff in the store already, just gives me more time to get excited for Christmas. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., 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 and I never think it's too early for Christmas, although there is this one religious station in America that's called the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and they have this huge, gaudy building off the side of the freeway, and one year... They just decided to not take down their Christmas decorations. So they just left up their Christmas decorations year-round. So whenever you would drive by at night, it was big, like, glittery signs that said, Happy Birthday, Jesus. And I always thought that that was very interesting. <laughs> well, um, and since me and Milady will be going away for three weeks to three different countries, I, we have a thing in my household, which is anytime you go to a foreign country, you buy a Christmas ornament there. Mm. Uh, so I've got to find Christmas ornaments in Hong Kong, Japan, and Australia. Ooh, that'll be fun. Um, and around this time of year, oh yeah, it'll be fine. You'll be good to go. Oh yeah, yeah. No, 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 I'll be fine. Plus, you know, it's like, it, also, you know, you can get away with, say, finding a trinket and making it into a Christmas ornament. It doesn't have to be a specifically, like, uh, we have like a bunch of um, Christmas ornaments on the tree. Like I made a, a little, um, I made a Christmas ornament out of a Loch Ness monster uh, stuffed animal one time. Oh, good. So, you know, you just it's, get, a, it's, it's get a boomerang when you're in Australia and then just... Cut a uh, hole in it and stick a string on it, and you can hang it on the tree. This week, in order to catch up with uh, the reviews, we are going to be doing a extended review segment uh, where we'll be covering Blind Spotting, The Wife, Sorry to Bother You, The House with a Clock in Its Wall, Mandy, Halloween, Never Going Back, Bad Times at the El Royale, Apostle, and Venom. Uh, then we'll be talking about the 1987 Rob Reiner classic, The Princess Bride. <laughs> So, Austin, Halloween is upon us. It is. And, um, you know, what is the best part of Halloween? Obviously, the candy. Oh, I thought you were going to um, say sexy nurses. Um, well, I suppose that's number two, you know, okay. women feeling like it's the perfect time. Well, actually, men as well, you know, because, I mean, if you go to uh, any gay Halloween parties, you'll definitely see this. But uh, You don't you even know, need to go to being, a gay Halloween like, party. You know what? Let's be slutty. You don't even need to go to a gay Halloween party. This is just the time for people to not wear clothes, and it's acceptable in public. It's wonderful, unless you're at the beach. Well, yeah, or carnival. Yeah, but again, you're from this is this is. I feel like you're from SoCal. You live in a world where people don't wear much clothes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And plus, you're in Australia now. Though the funny thing about Australia is, of course, everyone's really, really paranoid about the sun. So weirdly, Australia has a lot of pale people in it. Yeah, that's true. I've seen a lot of fair-skinned people in Australia. But we are going to, but anyway, because candy is obviously the name of the game when it comes to Halloween, uh, we are going to be rating the films in Halloween candy this year. 
Um, mm. We are going to we're going to say what Halloween candy the uh, the film makes us feel. Now this is going there's there is no spectrum or system to this. It is just I'm going to say the name of a candy and you will just. I know you you like when we gets abstract and interpretive, so you can just figure out what that means. Deal. Okay, so we're gonna start off with blind spotting, which interestingly enough, I kind of feel like there's certainly been a uh, a sort of wave this year of kind of socially conscious um, movies coming from minority perspectives, and also like the city of Oakland seems to be getting like a big like boost this year in terms of just like cinematic attention. Cause I can't prior to this, I can barely think of another film that's actually set in Oakland. And this year, you know, there's black Panther, there's this, there's sorry to bother you, man. Oakland's having a moment. Um, mm, definitely. but, uh, but this was a kind of like a Sundance hit. It is written and starred by, uh, uh, David Diggs, who, First became famous through Hamilton and a childhood friends of his called um, Rafael Casal. Um, both of them grew up in Oakland, and this is kind of somewhat based off of you know at least their experience of Oakland. And it's it's a kind of it basically, David Diggs plays a guy who is has a, is on parole. And the film takes place in kind of like the last three days of his parole while he's in a kind of like staying in a halfway house. And he has a job, you know, on a delivery truck um, that he does with his friend, played by Raphael Cassell. Um, And um, it's actually the trailer to this film is kind of misleading because it makes you think that the film is very much about a cop shooting. And it's like a a cop shooting somebody. And while that's a certain backbone to it, he witnesses a cop um, shooting an unarmed man. Um, it isn't, I would say, the main focus of it. It's much more of a kind of hangout film. And it's a lot lighter than the trailer might imply as well. And, I mean, it's one of these films that's really interesting because it makes me feel... It, it feels almost like a kind of throwback. It feels like the kind of thing that just flooded Sundance in the 90s, where, you know, you have two sort of... Guys who have a you know a, a good sort of chemistry double act, and then really it's just about them experiencing the world around them, and it's a very much about the world around them. It's got these very interesting themes of kind of gentrification and how Oakland's kind of changing, and of course you have this big overspill because San Francisco's become so fucking expensive now that like mm. uh, yeah, it's sort of like um, Oakland's kind of now getting all of the hipster spillover, and you know, and it's it's interesting in terms of how that relates to. Um, you know, race relations in in the city and how, like, the, the locals feel and how, like, it's taking over space, all this sort of stuff. And, um, and I found it really, really fascinating. It's directed by Carlos Lopez Estrada, who, this is his debut, but he's sort of previously done um, quite a bit of, like, music video work, and it's got a real kind of, like, nice flair to it, and, like, the two central performances are great, and they have an incredible amount of chemistry. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's just I thought it was a a really fantastic little movie with this kind of real kind of authentic vibe to it. Um, plus, it also has I'm going to butcher her name, um, Janina uh, Gavankar, who um, plays the uh, ex-girlfriend of David Diggs. And she is quite possibly one of the most attractive women in the world. So that's <laughs> nice as well. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's a hard movie to sort of describe because it, again, kind of part of it is almost just 
hanging out with these guys in Oakland. Um, mm. the, like I said, the trailer almost tries to give you more of a very specific plot to it, but it's more kind of a loose. It's it's more kind of like a just just, just a, a loose framework with which to kind of like explore and experience a whole bunch of these sort of ideas. Mm. And you know, and I, I I like the fact that it's these two guys who aren't like massive names who've gotten who've had who've written this script themselves and are starring in it. And it just it feels kind of it feels good to have that kind of thing because it, again, it feels very much like something that would have happened in the nineties. Okay, so then um, what kind of candy would this be? I am going to give it peanut M&M's. Ooh. I like peanut M&M's. Okay. Well, I do too. Yeah, I don't know anything um, about the film, but I am stoked because Ethan Embry's in it, and I love Ethan Embry because he reminds actually, me of being a teenager. Ethan Embry's – it's interesting too because Ethan – this is part of Ethan Embry's uh, makeover as um, kind of masculine, yeah. bullish, kind of scary dude. Um, he plays the cop who is um, responsible for shooting the unarmed black man. Um, and he's actually not in the film a lot, but he has one scene which he's actually really fantastic in, which, um, I mean, he probably won't get a lot of credit because I think due somewhat to the nature of the part he's playing, but he is actually really, really good in that scene. Good. Good for him. All right, what's next? Uh, so we are jumping on to... The Wife, which is getting a lot of kind of attention at the moment. Well, a kind of a small amount of attention because basically it's kind of Glenn Close's potential opportunity to win Best Actress. She's been uh. nominated about five times, never won. And then it's that kind of so it's that thing of it's a, a, this is opportunity to award a, a beloved actress. And so I went into this film with a, a healthy too dose bad, of cynicism. Too bad that she's making. doing it in the year when Lady Gaga is going to win. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and then there's at least somebody else who's a really obvious front runner who I'm who I'm I'm blanking on at the moment. But um, yeah, it's it's an interesting one because I like I said I went in very cynically because you know I thought this was kind of like a still Alice or you know like a, a being Julia one of those films where it's like a beloved actress doing uh, a performance that is technically Oscar worthy, you know, in the sense that she's got a name and it's a performance. So we could give her an Oscar for that. Mm. Um, you know, but the film is mediocre. That was kind of what I was going in with the expectation of. And I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised. It's a very unfussy movie. I've never heard of the director before, but he seems to have been working a lot in Sweden for a, a long time. And the film, funnily enough, is actually shot in Glasgow, but pretty much entirely set in Sweden. So Glasgow is basically doubling for Stockholm. Funny. Um, and so the, um, the sort of the, the it's based off a novel. The plot basically revolves around um, a couple played by Jonathan Price and Glenn Close. And uh, the the film kind of kicks off with Jonathan Price, who's a writer, getting um, uh, being told by the Nobel Prize Committee that he has won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, and then the film kind of like takes place over like the time period where you arrive in Stockholm and then go through all like the planning of the ceremony through to the Nobel Prize, you know, the, the awarding of the Nobel Prize. And it's very interesting because I I don't know if this is a spoiler because it's so kind of like part of the trailer. But essentially, it's very early implied 
that Jonathan Price potentially did not write the books that he is being sort of that he's being awarded for, and that actually this is his, um, and that actually his wife ghost wrote the book, ghost wrote the books for him. Hmm. Um, and I think the thing that's very very interesting about the film is I think it has a very subtle and interesting look at kind of gender dynamics within it because it's really fascinating to watch how everyone is treating Jonathan Price as this kind of great man. And I think within popular culture, we have this kind of obsession with the idea of the great man and the, uh, the, the, the genius. And this, so we, we, we want to laud people for having, you know, this, this, this impossible intellect. Mm. Um, and Jonathan Price is a bit of a blowhard. He's a bit of a bully. Meanwhile, you know, there's this kind of, um, sort of treatment of Glenn Close as this, um, very much kind of appendage to him. Like, you know, people are always very, very nice to her, but it's in, but it's always very much reflected through her husband. It's like this idea of like, oh, you must be so proud, you know, in the way, you know, and it's like, oh, he's going to go off and do this. So maybe you could go off and do some shopping or something. It's, 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 it's very interesting to look at kind of this very traditional idea of sort of male and female gender roles through the prism of this kind of, uh, uh, build up to the awards ceremony, and then of course at the whole way there is this kind of bubbling undercurrent that something is not right with mm. all of this. And Christian Slater plays this um, journalist who is doing an unauthorized biography on Jonathan Price, and sort of has come up, has uncovered some early works of his, and also some early works of Glenn Close's character, and realizes that he, and has this theory that Glenn Close is actually the one who's been writing the novels. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I think it has um, some really sort of, I think, it's, it's quite funny, because there's actually two movies out this year, um, the, um, where uh, a female author is given, and it has her, um, is is um is used in order so that her husband can publish sort of books. Um, and the other one is Colette, starring Keira Knightley and Dominic West. And I, it it definitely feels very of the moment, but it's also I think I think it doesn't just feel like it's seizing on a zeitgeist point. It feels very it it feels like there's a very interesting like I said a very interesting dissection of kind of how. Um, of um of what we think of as traditional gender roles. Okay. Um, but anyway, I'm I am going to give it a Reese's peanut butter cup. See, this is going to be a really hard system to figure out what the fuck this means because I just love candy. So I'm trying to yeah. figure out. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there are certain candies that I prefer less, but really, there's no candy if you put in front of me where I'd be like, well, that doesn't sound at least tasty. So, yeah, but, you know, there's yeah. like there's like shit like say like dots. Dots are just useless. Are those the ones things. that get all sticky in your teeth? Just... Yeah. See, I like, like them. There's there's nah, because like they've got no flavor to them. Also, like there's a weird thing too where American candy is so much duller than British candy. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, kind of depends. Kind of depends. You. Okay. But you know, I, I think you could probably intuit my feelings about it based on how I maybe. Um, announce the candy and i can feel your energy during your review yeah i can feel i can um, feel your joy or not non-joy yeah but moving moving on we are actually in a very this is a very very weird one um which is this is the new eli roth film 
for children. Uh, the house with a clock in its walls, which I wasn't going to actually go see. And then Bradley was really enthusiastic about it. And I was kind of intrigued. And it's it's kind of that very sort of classic setup. It's set during the 50s. And it's like a kid. He loses his parents. So he goes to live with his weird uncle who lives in this really strange mansion. And, you know, as it goes on, he realizes that his uncle, uh, played by Jack Black, is a warlock. <laughs> and he asks him to start teaching him magic. And t- together with the help of his kooky witch next door neighbor played by Kate Blanchett. They teach him magic. However, there's a strange mystery about the person, uh, Jack Black's former partner played by Kyle McLaughlin, who's a kind of evil warlock who has hidden this clock in uh, the wall of the house where, which um, occasionally chimes out. And once it stops chiming, there is a fear that something bad will happen. And so it's a, it's a sort of slight mystery plot wrapped up in all of this kind of like Harry Potter-ish kind of like kid discovers hidden world type things. And it's, it's very charming, you know? Mm. Um, Eli Roth is really adept at making films for children, which in a weird way shouldn't seem that crazy because there's something quite childish about the notion of kind of exploitation cinema because it's very much about kind of like um, just giving people a kind of uh, thrill. And, you know, and I, and I, so I think there's I think there's something to be said about how the simple pleasures of gore can be translated into <laughs> the simple pleasures of, say, like gross out things kids will like and stuff like that. And I, I actually, this is the sort of film that when I was eight or nine, I probably would have thought was amazing. Um, so like boobs and know, slime are in the same category. Is that what you're saying? Kind of. I mean, <laughs> so, it's like so Nickelodeon thing. and the spice channel are just really mirror images of each other. <laughs> I, I think there's something to be said about the idea of like the sort of, visceral thrill um uh, you know the way that you sort of three thrill children and the way you 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 thrill kind of like exploitation people i mean you're not necessarily going in trying to make people think with undercurrents of you know interesting subtext and all of that you're trying to give people what they want up front and i think and you know eli roth is a kind of you know, I think kind of fancies himself as like the modern William Castle. He wants to be kind of a showman. It 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 makes sense in many ways that he would be able to appeal to children. And I think, yeah, I think it's actually really good. I think it's one of his, it's definitely his most technically competent film. I think it, it looks really nice. It has some really nice set pieces. And I think, mm. um, and it, it, Bradley was also a big fan of this. And he sort of said, and I kind of agree with him, that, um, I mean, after this, you know, Marvel sh- must be looking at him as a possible um, director to uh, take over one of their franchises, because he, you know, very much, I'd say this is the first time I've ever seen him truly sort of prove himself as a studio director. Yeah, interesting. So maybe this was a sizzle reel. Is 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 calculate po- possibly a calculated move on his part, right. but I, 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 I really liked it. It was fun. I'm going to give it a Fun-sized Mars. Oh, I love those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next. So, we are going to go to something nutty as fuck. And that is... Are you going to give it a nutrageous? Nicholas Cage. Uh, what? Are you going to give it a nutrageous? I'm just guessing. But, but you'll, you'll have to see. Uh-huh. You'll have to see. Anyway. I know it. Or a Baby to, Ruth. Or a Snickers. We are, we are talking about <laughs> Nicholas Cage in a lot of colored lighting screaming while trippy shit happens and yeah it's uh the panos cosmatos film mandy Um, i've heard a lot about this basically the plot of this is very very simple nicholas cage is a lumberjack and andrea reisberg is his um wife 
who is who likes to draw what looks like sort of heavy metal cartoons. Okay. Um, and then one day, some evil cult people see her, and then they decide, and uh, their sort of leader decides, I want her. And then they go and they try to kidnap her, um, leading to Nicolas Cage seeking revenge. And um, this revenge forces him to fight sort of demonic biker demons um, and various weird shit happens. And Nicolas Cage goes fairly crazy. This this does seem to be a kind of film that is just there to say, Nicolas Cage, do whatever the fuck you want. You are you are fully allowed to just go off the chain. And this is this is Nicolas Cage kind of at times hitting his um, kind of a. Vampire's Kiss levels of dementedness. Um, And, you know, whether you think that's good or bad will depend on your feelings about Nicolas Cage in general. Um, uh, My feeling about Nicolas Cage is generally uh, I like Nicolas Cage in doses. Um, He sometimes... I I think genuinely he can be an awful actor sometimes, but this kind of seems to play to his strengths in a lot of ways. It's it's an interesting one because... As much as what I've said sounds really, like, just, like, nutty and trippy, it is also quite slow at points. Like, especially the first 30 to 40 minutes kind of are very slow, and then it kind of kicks into gear. But you have to be willing to kind of just sit in the atmosphere of it. It's, you know, very kind of... It's very visual in nature. I think someone like me, I can just really get um, immersed in the cinematography and kind of enjoy that. But like the film will also like occasionally veer into weird animated flights of fancy and just it's indulgent in many ways, but in a way that I would actually say is quite positive. Um, Though it was funny, Alex came out of it saying she wished it had been weirder. Um, Hmm. Weirder, and weirder I, I will say I the one the one thing that I really struggle with because I didn't show this a lot theatrically and I really want to see this in the cinema so we went to a cinema we went to the the film house in Edinburgh to watch it and there were a bunch of people who possibly were high possibly not but were really gilled up uh, you know geared up to watch a Nicolas Cage meme film like like they were watching this very clearly with the Nicolas Cage meme in mind. And so literally anytime he was on the screen, they thought it was the funniest thing ever, which was really obnoxious and distracting because it was that thing where I kind of, at one point had just wanted to yell at them, just take the film seriously. Cause while I certainly think there's points of the film that you're meant to laugh at, there was a lot of points they were laughing at where nothing funny was happening. It was just cause Nicolas Cage was on screen (laughs) and it meant that you ended up kind of feeling like, it's diluting the effect of the whole film because you because you're not laughing at anything of that's actually like funny. So it means that like I, I don't know. It just it, it it slightly sort of starts to put you off. It kind of like puts you in a weird zone and kind of is very distracting. So yeah, I mean I, I think potentially that hurt my experience of it a bit. But I mean overall, it's a it's one of those ones I'd really struggle almost to say. Um, to say like to recommend to people i'm kind of like watch the trailer if the trailer appeals to you imagine the trailer but longer and slower um so just yeah, that's basically how i would say yeah yeah I, i'd say use your own judgment about whether you think mandy will appeal to you or not 
Okay, so what kind of candy? Nerds. Okay, <laughs> that works. All right, what's next? Uh, well, why don't you talk about? Um, sorry to bother you. Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, so I know it's not out in the UK yet. It's actually not out in Australia yet. There is a pre-screening that is going to be showing here in the next week that I'm actually going to go to, so I'll be seeing it again. But I got an advanced screener because the people at Wisecrack were going to be talking about it. So I got to watch that. And, you know, it's it's tough because there, whenever there's a film that has so much hype surrounding it, there's always that fear of whether or not it's going to live up to the hype. And so the first thing I'll say is I'm just going to get everything out of the way that could be a potential criticism. This is Boots Riley's first film. There are elements of the film where I think the pacing is a little bit um, awkward. It's a little bit cumbersome. There are some elements where you're kind of like, okay, I, I can see some production flaws. But all of that to me is inconsequential because the movie is fucking awesome. It is this surreal insightful, intelligent, and entertaining, and I I don't want to ruin anything, but there is a turn in this film <laughs> that is simply ludicrous. But it all has a meaning behind it. There is, and this is the type of filmmaking for me, you know? Like, so I'm a little hesitant to see how you feel about this film. Like, I'm curious, because I know you really like Black Klansmen, and... I think that that this film is in many ways got some similarities in terms of uh, character struggles. You know, like there's. Well, do you want to do you want to just explain quickly what the concept of it is? So the concept of the film. So here's the thing: it, it, it's very difficult to explain the concept without giving away certain things. But I'll just give a I'll give away a, the a, give away what's in the trailer. I'll give you what's in the trailer and uh, just know that there's much much more than this. But basically, the story follows Cash, and he is uh, in a relationship with uh, a woman, and he's trying to seek some sort of social advancement. He's living in, in basically his uncle's garage that's been turned into his room. And he gets a job at a telemarketing center, and and his he, uncle is played by Terry Crews, who Terry is Cruz. The, one of the most lovable human beings on the planet. He's amazing. He he's got a small part in this, but he's really lovely in it. Um, and he goes to a call center to work in telemarketing, and he's getting hung up on. And then Danny Glover is another black dude in the office who tells him you got to use your white guy voice. And then he kind of explains to him what the white guy voice is. And so then Lakeith Stanfield, the actor that plays Cash, puts on the white guy voice, and the voice is actually voiced by David Cross. So it's uh, which is kind of a nice juxtaposition with. David Cross, this alt comedian, and Lakeith Stanfield, and the sound coming out of his voice. And he puts on the white guy voice. I kind of love the idea that David Cross is like the voice of white people. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. And so he puts on the white guy voice, and he starts making all of these sales, and he ends up becoming a power caller, and he gets promoted. And at the same time, all the rest of the people in the call center are trying to band together to create a union so that they can have solidarity for their own wages. But Lakeith Stanfield's character, Cash, starts to get success, and he gets extracted from that environment. So there's like the struggle of, you know, the black man who's struggling to get success, and when he finally gets success, then he's a bit of an outsider because the rest of the people that he was supposed to be in solidarity with, they get a little bit jealous of him getting the success, but also they're like, are you not going to stand with us? And if we protest, are you going to cross the picket line just so you can make your cushy jobs now? And he's like, guys, I've been trying to just fucking survive, and now that I'm finally tasting success, you're going to get mad at me. So there's tension at that level. Um, There's also a very heavy anti-capitalist message. Like, it's not subtle 
at all. Like the fact that Anna, which is which is why I was kind of sitting there going like when you said when you were saying that you love this film, I was like, of course Austin loves this. Film. Yeah, I mean it's not subtle at all, but at the same time, it's also not pedantic. Like I. I didn't feel, now again, maybe I didn't feel that way because I'm already inclined towards these sentiments anyway, but I didn't feel like I was being preached at. I just felt like it was a really lovely articulation of one, the black experience, and two, what it means to live in Oakland in a particular socioeconomic tier that is struggling within a system that is geared against you, right? Um, and then I will just say this, Army Hammer is in this film, and this might be the, my favorite role I have ever seen Army Hammer play. It's not huge. He has about two or three meaty scenes, uh, two in particular, and I th- one in particular. One is really one is really good, um, but it's kind of a long, extended scene, and um, and I th- think he's just fucking. I think he's amazing in the role that he plays. He plays like this uber billionaire that's trying to figure out more effective ways of making profits and. This is about at the point when some shit goes fucking awry. And I would just say don't read any reviews. Like just don't. Like stop. I'm not I'm not reading reviews. It's interesting too cuz basically Bradley saw it at LFF and you know he kind of came back to me and sort of said um he was kind of like it's not what you think it is from the trailer and he also said he's like he thought it was deeply overrated. Um you know his kind of so I'm I'm in, I'm intrigued to see where it ends up because obviously I I have these two very different influences a lot of times like you and Bradley in terms of your taste don't line up and a lot yeah. of times I'll line up somewhere in the middle mm. of that. So I'm really intrigued to see where it uh where it hits for me but funnily enough there's been a bunch of films this year that I was concerned about after the deep deep disappointment that I had with Black Panther which I still contend is a deeply overrated movie. Um you know, both say so. Both say blind spotting and um, black Klansmen, and I think something else somewhere where it felt like they might just be a kind of you know woke overpraising of something. Um, actually, turned out to be really fantastic. So I'm 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 feeling quite optimistic about Sorry to Bother. Just me. do me a favor and don't go in comparing it to Black Klansmen. Like, eliminate, because so many people are saying these are, like, the two quintessential black films at the moment, right? And the problem is, is they're very different. Which is a shame, because I feel like Blindspotting has really been lost in the mix in a way that I think is really fascinating. I think think Blindspotting is a really underrated film, and you should definitely check it out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I haven't seen it. I've heard about it, and so I've heard some good things about it, but... But I will say that in terms of like the social and political orientation, there are two very different films. And oh yeah, and and also, um, sorry to bother you, is just like this weird fucking surrealist trip. So to 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 be fair, Boots Riley also somewhat invites the comparison because of his op-ed. Yeah, maybe maybe that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because in a way, he's kind so, of staking a claim on. The sort of like black socioeconomic experience in a way that he was being critical of black Klansmen for maybe ignoring or underplaying or something like that. So, yeah. And I think it's also the obvious parallel is the fact, too, that you they're both films that revolve around a black man on the phone pretending to be a white person. So there's there's I think a lot of people draw that kind of shallow parallel between the two. Sure, sure. But so the candy that I would give it because it's this crazy fucking surrealist romp, it is um a really tasty Three Musketeers, like fun size candy 
that has been injected with MDMA. <laughs> That's not Halloween candy, man. That's going to kill a kid. Now, do you remember the fucking rumor when we were kids that it was like you had to, your parents had to check your Halloween candy because people were supposedly drugging Oh, yeah, well, there was always them. that thing. There's always that thing yeah, <laughs> that was like uh, you couldn't take anything that wasn't wrapped because, like, you know, somebody – there's always this thing like, oh, there's a razor blade in, like, the candy or something. No, the like razor that, blades were true. in the That's park. That's never happened. The razor blades were in the huh? park. The razor blades were in the uh. sand in the park. The candy was – is yeah, you couldn't take – No, no, no. That, the razor blades were also in the candy. Oh, this were was they? also a thing. That oh, razor well, bl- oh, yeah. You know, you know that in Australia – That's why you couldn't take anything that wasn't wrapped. You know in Australia that some dudes were putting needles in strawberries. Oh, yeah. No, I did. I did read about that. So, I mean, like, a lot of people, like, were, they were finding them all over. They even found them in New Zealand. So, I don't know. But it was an urban legend, uh, from what I understand. But the thing was, is, like... Yeah, no the, no case, no kid has ever been poisoned on Halloween. No, but the rumor happened. was, is that they would, like, take a needle, and they would, like, puncture it into the candy, and they would inject it with, like, poison or drugs uh, or something like that. So, I'm going to reverse cause, that, cause, and I'm going to make it MDMA, is in my Mars bar, or in my Three Musketeers. Because some men just want to watch the world burn. Some men do. All right, what's next for you? Okay, so we're going to talk about Halloween 2018. It's a weird one because it's like, it bugs me a little bit that they've called it Halloween. Because it's not a remake of Halloween. It is very much a sequel. And it's, it's, it's a kind of weird one in the sense that it is a sequel to the 1978 John Carpenter original Halloween and ignores all other sequ- all of the sequels. And Halloween has a weird fucked up timeline to begin with because you have the first two Halloween films, which take place on the same night. Then you have the third one, which is a film that has nothing to do with the rest of the series and was when they were trying to make Halloween into an anthology film where they were like, Michael Myers is dead He gets because he gets killed at the end of the second one. And then... Then you... And then that film flops and they go back to... They bring Michael Myers back in the third one Um and then you get all the you go have these three nutty really bad sequels and then with Halloween H2O they say you know what none of those other those last three sequels don't count we're going back to Halloween 2 so this is a sequel to Halloween 2 um, where she then kills Michael Myers at the end and then but that movie makes too much money and then they go like with <laughs> Halloween with, with Halloween Resurrection they go oh Michael Myers is actually still alive because he just faked his death and then he kills Laurie Strode in the first 10 minutes of the film and one of the many re- the only redeemable thing about Halloween Resurrection is that one point Buster Rhymes busts in at the end and goes trick or treat motherfucker which is just amazing that's that's a, this is just a brilliant moment in cinema. But, you know, outside of that, you know, all of the Halloween sequels are pretty much garbage. And then you have Rob Zombie. Then Rob Zombie remakes Halloween, which is something that should never have allowed to have been happened. And, and quite frankly, is one of the great American shames that anybody ever allowed Rob Zombie to remake a John Carpenter movie. And not only that, he then makes his own version of Halloween 2, which has nothing to do with the sequel, but is a direct sequel to his own film. And then, so, step in. David Gordon Green and Blumhouse. Now you're a David Gordon Green fan, aren't you? Ish, yeah. You I, like Prince Avalanche? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I do. I was actually really surprised that he was doing this. Just seems totally out of step with his normal indie thing. It's not though, because David Gordon Green has weirdly had this kind of. He seems to have this weird sort of schizophrenic thing where he goes through periods in his career where he decides he wants to be main make make mainstream films, and so he makes like. He makes uh, Pineapple Express, right. then Your Highness, and then The Sitter. Um, and then, you know, 
then retreats back into making indie films again. And then, uh, so this is kind of like just, and he was obsessed with the idea of remaking Suspiria for ages. And I have to say, I'm really glad that Luca Guadagnino ended up remaking it, not David Gordon Green. But yeah, he's, I think he's a very patchy director. Um, I think he's, I've, I've, never really been that enthused for many David Gordon Green films. Um, some of his early indie films I just find really boring. Hmm. Um, but I think it's it, he was an interesting choice. And again, I'd rather see like a proper filmmaker have a go at it and take it seriously than somebody just kind of churn out a shitty sequel. And so the idea with this is they've said, okay, we're going to ignore everything except the first film, and this is just a direct sequel to the first film taking place like 40 years after the fact. Hmm. So... The film revolves around Laurie Strode again, again played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who's kind of gone all Sarah Connors. She's got PTSD and has basically spent the last 40 years preparing for the inevitable return of Michael Myers. Has basically turned into like a crazy survivalist, has like this basement full of guns and has this very strange relationship with her daughter, played by Judy Greer and her granddaughter, um, who is played by somebody I don't know. Um (laughs) Andy uh, Matichak, um, who's an actress I've never heard of. Um, but anyway, they um, basically, yeah, they the um, and meanwhile, you also have this kind of like second plot about like this, these kind of two uh, British journalists who are kind of doing essentially like a serial thing. They're doing a podcast, you know, where they are investigating um, cases. So they go talk. They want to go talk to. Michael Myers, and so the, the the you know the first part of the film kind of like ends up sort of you end up finding out kind of like what's happened in the last forty years through these two characters, and I think there's something kind of fun about the fact that the film is engaging with this idea that culturally there's been this real interest in kind of like true crime in the last five years, you know, through things like Making a Murderer and The Jinx and Serial. So I, I like the fact that it's sort of playing into that, and I think there's a kind of interesting idea too in that sense of to what extent is our Something like Halloween, which is about a kind of like crazed serial killer, um, to what extent is our enjoyment as an audience of that also linked to our fascination with these true crime stories? And to what extent are we distanced and we view them as fiction when in actual fact they're real things? So there's kind of like some interesting themes in that. Um, and I think actually the film touches on a, quite a few kind of interesting ideas in the sense of PTSD and also actually I think as a really interesting dissection of the final girl concept. And by having mm. one of the ultimate scream queens in Jamie Lee Curtis, who, you know, of course, daughter of Janet Lee was basically born into the whole, you know, sort of scream queen thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, was in things like terror train, Halloween, the fog, um, road games, you know, it's, she's, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how the film is kind of really dissecting the genre in a lot of ways. And I'd say, funnily enough, the thing the film does least successfully is be a slasher film. And I feel like it feels weirdly like it's not the part of the film the filmmakers actually care about. Like, they're not really that interested in watching Michael Myers walk around and kill people. Because, of course, inevitably Michael Myers escapes because they wouldn't have a film if Michael Myers didn't escape. Um, And so... That sort of middle section is weirdly the part of the film that feels kind of baggy. And Mm. it's all kind of leading up to the sort of the big climax, which is inevitably going to be a showdown between Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. And all of that stuff is really, really well handled. And I think, again, really interesting how that fits into the 
oeuvre of the sort of the horror sequel and the slasher sequel and the final girl and all of these things. And, you know, and, and it, it's, it's hard for me to go into too much without also spoiling the film to a certain extent. Um, but I think you can read into a lot of what I'm saying. But I think it's probably the most interesting slasher sequel that's been made since Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Um, and I think as a horror fan, I find it really interesting. I think the fanboys will hate this because I think it's not a film that's very concerned with a lot of the childish visceral thrills that horror sequels often get into because especially when you watch something like the Friday the 13th series and really all of that comes down to is the boobs and the kills and nothing else matters it's like it's almost like watching a a Looney Tunes cartoon you're just waiting for the splatter (laughs) and this is not a film that's really that interested in that part of it it does have some of that but it's almost anti- you know, I compared it a little bit to Gareth Evans' um, Godzilla film. You know how, like, for the first... Did you watch that? Which one was that one? That was the most recent one. Um, not Gareth Evans, Gareth, Gareth Edwards, sorry. Um, that's the recent one um, with, like... Um, the dude from Kick-Ass. That had uh, Brian Cranston, Cranston and yeah. um, and um, Aaron Taylor-Johnson. Yeah. But, like, for the first half of that movie, it's that weird thing where every time Godzilla's about to fight, like, it'll cut away, you know? And so, and then building up to, like, the big climax. Um, And this film, while it doesn't totally do that, it's not completely that interested in elaborate kills, you know? Mm. And I think, um, I think, again, it's it's interesting because I think it's somebody essentially trying to make a proper film rather than make just a slasher film. A slasher film, sure. Uh, and I think there is this weird push and pull between those two dynamics of where the director's interest lies and what they have to actually do to accomplish it. But I, I can see exactly why John Carpenter's been far more supportive and vocal about this one. In fact, actually comes back and um, uh, contributes to the score on it. Um, cool, okay. And yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's really interesting. It's it's interesting because I went to see it with um, Alex and her friend and. I be I've got years of knowing the franchise, knowing sort of horror films built up, which I think give me a very big appreciation of what it's doing. I think if you just go in to see a horror film, I'm not totally sure it's going to have the same impact on you. It's probably going to see more. It's probably going to be slightly more underwhelming, I think. So, in, I, so, I so really in a way, this it. is kind of like a filmmaker's horror film. I do think a in a weird way it's kind of a filmmaker's film. horror film. Yeah. It, it's actually, you know, in many ways it's what happens when you give a indie director, you know, <laughs> carte blanche to kind of do what they want with a franchise, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, but I'd, I'd, I'd recommend it. I give it a crunch bar. Okay. Right on. Um, um, and what else? Is that the end or do we have more? No, we've got we've got a bunch more. So I'll try and roll through a couple quickly. <laughs> okay. Um, so. So I watched um, Never Going Back, which was another kind of uh, Sundance hit, uh, which uh, revolves around two girls in small town Texas. You know, that kind of like barren landscape of just nothing but like commercial roads where, you know, everything's kind of like stretched out. And, you know, there's almost no kind of discernible town. It's just kind of commercial nothingness Um, who are 16, 17 and they're sort of their high school dropouts and they're working in a sort of like waffle house as waitresses and they are getting high all the time and they are basically massive fuck-ups um and yeah the film basically revolves around these two girls just going around and being fuck-ups it's very 
funny. I mean, it's kind of like, um, he has kind of got a sort of like Friday quality to it. Um, it's very funny. It's very likable. Uh, the two actresses, neither of which I've really seen before, uh, Maya Mitchell and Camilla Monro- uh, Marone, are both really good. And yeah, and it's um, really fun, worth seeing. I actually weirdly suddenly realized I have very little to say about it, but it is huh. a really fun little kind of like stoner hangout comedy that is very worth seeing. Okay. Um, so yeah, so that is never going back, and that gets... Gushers. Okay. So uh, we're going to move on to Bad Times at the El Royale, mm. which is the new film from Drew Goddard, uh, writer-director of Cabin in the Woods. film concerns a hotel called the El Royale in Nevada, which basically sits on the line between Nevada and California, and you can choose to either stay in Nevada or California, and basically concerns a bunch of strangers played by name actors who show up at the El Royale for different reasons and their stories kind of collide. And yeah, it is very kind of 90s Tarantino rip. You know how like there was a type of film in the 90s that was all kind of like styled, you know, basically the director had seen a Tarantino film, you know, and was basically like, I want to make that. Right. Um, and it feels kind of like that. So you have, you know, Jeff Bridges as a priest, but is he a priest? You know, and, and um, you know, you have Dakota Johnson as a girl who's, you know, got a mysterious thing she's up to, and John Hamm who's a vacuum cleaner salesman. But there's more to him than you think. And yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to know kind of how much I should say because part of the whole film is very much like unraveling the mystery of the different characters, and it's um, it, it's. It's it's a hard one because I sit there and I go like the sets are fantastic. It all looks amazing. The uh the actors are all great, you know, you have a you know, just a really fantastic um ensemble cast. You know, um the dialogue is really sort of it it's good, it's strong. I think Goddard has come on a lot as a director since Cabin in the Woods. I think it has a much cleaner, more sort of like stylish look to it. Um and at the end of it, I just sat there and thought why don't I like this more? Um, it just, you know, I, I, while I was watching it, I was into it enough. I liked it fine. And then by the end of it, I was just kind of sat there going like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess that was it. Um, hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a long movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's a weird one too, because I feel slightly guilty because I feel like I should, I want to like it because it is an original film that is made for $30 million. Basically, Drew Goddard got leveraged getting this film made um, through his, um, um, through you know, basically off of his uh, best picture win and by agreeing to script a bunch of um, other Fox properties. So, yeah, again, you're kind of. And like, this is, this is one of those trailers of... that we watched. Remember when we watched a bunch of trailers yeah. and we thought, yeah. you thought you were going to be really into this, huh? Yeah. On the surface of it, it has everything that should really work great for me. And again, it's, it's, it's hard for me to say, like, there's anybody who's wrong in it or anything that's bad at it. Like, again, like, uh, Chris Hemsworth later shows up as a kind of, um, as a kind of um, Charles Manson-like sort of cult leader. Hmm. Um, and yeah, like, everything, you know, it's got a really fantastic soundtrack. It's just filled with all of these kind of old sort of 50s, 60s music and you know, again, like I said, the production design is 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 gorgeous. You know, uh, cinematographers Seamus McGarvey and everything looks fantastic. And I'm just kind of like, it, I can't even. It's like a weird intangible quality. Where at the end of it, I'm just left going, 
yeah, it was fine. Just something about it never totally clicked for me. Hmm. It's weird. It, when I watched the trailer, I'm actually just remembering this now. I kind of got a high-rise feeling about it. Remember, uh, you liked the book High Rise, but you didn't love the movie. You're not a big Ben Wheatley no, fan anyway. I hated anyway. the movie High Rise. Yeah, but I feel I, like for some reason this film gave me a similar feeling when I was watching it. Like, I think, I think the thing about it is that like High Rise to me is a complete mess of somebody just throwing stuff at the that's wall. That's kind of what I thought this film to, might be, and and trying to act like they, and trying to act like it's all deep and meaningful. Um, but it's essentially like to me like a a fifteen year old. Um, listing a bunch of things he's read and trying to make you think he's smart. Right. Um, whereas, like, uh, this is actually almost the opposite. I feel like the film feels far more like it's far more concerned with just, like, a straightforward, entertaining script. It's not trying to prove that it's in some way sort of... If it's trying like to prove it's smart... it's trying. Something. Yeah, if it's trying to prove it's smart, it's trying to prove it's smart in the sense of you know, creating a good pot boiler with the kind of, with reveals rather than, you know, sort of having some kind of overriding social message within it. Sure. Um, and it just, yeah, it just weirdly left me very cold and which was just very disappointing. So I'm going to give it a Tootsie roll <laughs> because, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with a Tootsie roll, but then again, when you got like a bunch of Tootsie rolls, they were never the thing you were excited about no and everybody gives fucking shitloads of tootsie rolls but you know the ones i did like is i like the sort of fruity flavored tootsie rolls those were the bomb yeah so we're second to last one i'm gonna talk about quickly one of austin's man crushes which is dan stevens and the movie <laughs> apostle which is a recent this is why i said gareth Ed evans earlier because uh this is actually directed by Gareth Evans, whereas Gareth Edwards directed Godzilla. And for some reason, both of them kind of came about sort of first sort of got it getting noticed around the same time. And so I have mm. forever getting them mixed up mm. because of that. Um, but Gareth Evans, who uh, is most known for the Raid films, um, this is his first uh, English language film, at least recent of recent memory. Um, and it's a sort of like Wicker Man-ish, horror-ish kind of film where um, Dan Stevens plays a guy who is addicted to laudanum, I think it is. Okay. It's some one of those old... It, t- it takes place in like, you know, around the turn of the century. Um, and his father is sent a uh, is sent a message from a remote island um, saying that uh, his daughter, Dan Stevens' sister... Um, is has been taken in by this strange community of sort of weird Christian missionaries who are sort of like have this sort of commune on this island in the middle of nowhere just off the coast of Wales um, and sort of led by uh, by uh, Michael Sheen and so Dan Stevens goes to investigate and find her so far so very Wicker Man in terms of concept um, and then once the film, the film has a sort of intriguing premise and then kind of once it, once you get there, it just kind of really drags. And it, it also has these mm. very strange moments where people get in fist fights and it feels kind of like shooting the raid, but people who don't really have the skill of the fighters in the raid or does it make much sense for them to be fighting in that kind of style anyway. Um, and yeah, it's a film that feels indulgent. It has, it has the same problems that so many Netflix do, where it kind of 
Netflix original films do where it kind of feels like them going like, yeah, we trust your vision. Just go do whatever you want. And it kind of feels like they did need an old fashioned kind of studio guy to kind of step in and go, eh, maybe you need to rethink this. Maybe this needs another draft. Maybe you should do this. I mean, weirdly, Netflix is making me believe in the studio system a lot because it's strange how much I end up finishing their films and kind of going like they really needed somebody to just insist on a few more drafts or bring another writer in or do something else Mm. with this. Um, but yeah, and I mean, Dan, this is also the first time I've ever seen Dan Stevens and thought, wow, he is mugging a lot. And this is, this is, he's just doing too much. He needs to like take it down a notch. Mm. Um, it doesn't help too that you've got one of the parts who's played by an American actress who's doing an awful English accent where she is like, clearly they, at some point somebody just said to her mumble. So people won't notice that your, that your accent is so bad. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, for the most part, it's a pretty decent cast and it has its moments like it has like a a, a, a few kind of like and it's it's suitably kind of grisly in, in, in places. It has a kind of good torture rack moment. And I mean, the concept that it's going for, the reveal is kind of fairly nutty. And you're kind of like, OK, I, I, I like the fact that somebody went there, but it just in the end, I just kind of left. I, I, it was just, it was, it was a really, really disappointing experience for me. Um, and I just don't know. I mean, weirdly, I've never been as into the raid films as other people have been. And largely I think it's because of the storytelling problems. As much as I think the fight scenes are really fantastic. They're really well choreographed. I, the storytelling has always been somewhat lacking. And I think Gareth Evans is a very flashy director. And I think with a better script could make something really good. I just don't know if maybe he should be writing his own stuff. I think maybe he should be jumping onto other people's scripts potentially. Mm. But yeah, this just feels like it needed a, a second pair of eyes or somebody else to come in and help it along. It was a kind of disappointing experience and it's getting a plain Hershey bar. <laughs> and if anybody, anybody knows anything knows that Hershey is one of the worst chocolate brands in the world and it's fucking terrible. Yep. Yep. Which actually is possibly a bit mean because I didn't think Apostle was terrible. But, you know, again, you got a plain Hershey bar. You were pretty disappointed. Yeah, especially when you're used to eating even a Cadbury bar, which is a thousand yeah, times I mean, even better. like – but even, you know, like a Mr. Good bar or like a – or a or Crackle or something like that. You know, give me – you know, even if you're going to get Hershey's, like get something with a little bit more to it. Yeah, um, not just the plain waxy chocolate. I'm with you. Yeah. So uh, our final film of this extended review period is – Venom, the hmm. movie where Tom Hardy gets taken over by a symbiote from another planet who wants to bite people's heads off. And then Tom Hardy's like, hey, we could become a superhero. Um, this is a weird film in a lot of ways because, you know, it's got a really strange cast to it because it's Tom Hardy, Michelle Williams, uh, Riz Ahmed, Jenny Slate, um, all people that you wouldn't necessarily be like, yeah, look, we're going to put them in a, in a superhero film. You know, meanwhile, Venom is a character that's essentially uh, a, Mar- uh, a Spider-Man villain who, you know, eventually in the 90s kind of ended up spinning off into his own standalone comic book series where he was kind of like an anti-hero. Um, and yeah, it's so this film also because this film is actually made by Sony. Uh, apart from the sort of the Marvel brand, it actually, what the thing I thought was very funny is at the beginning it says, in association with Marvel, um, which made me kind of feel like Marvel almost going like, yeah, we're not responsible for this one. Um, but 
it's it's weird because I've been very disparaging about this film since seeing the marketing material for it and kind of being like, this looks fucking awful. I think Ruben Fleischer is a terrible director. I think Zombieland, as we've said on the podcast, did an entire episode about it, is a deeply overrated and not very good film. No, no, you, and, you said on the podcast, I love Zombieland. No, I never said that you said that. I'm saying well, that's what I said. You said that's um, what we said on the podcast, and I just need to no, make sure that I'm extricating I myself. I didn't say we. There was no we in that. Roll back the I tape, said, motherfucker. I'll, I'll, I'll fucking... The, the embarrassing thing is when I edit this, <laughs> you know, I'll, I might even just put in a little thing of me laughing, being like, ha, Austin, see? Anyway, point is... Um, yeah, um, so Ruben Fleischer also made 30 Minutes or Less, terrible movie, uh, Gangster Squad, abysmally awful movie. He's not a guy I have any yeah. real faith in as a director. Um, and weirdly, I went into this film thinking it was going to be awful, and I weirdly enjoyed it. Um, Dude, I've heard this was, from, like, everybody. Same thing. Nobody was more surprised about this than me, and I had to kind of come out and feel like I was eating my words a bit, because I've been shitting on this movie relentlessly for months <laughs> um and you know even like when the when the opening box office came out i posted on facebook going like this is why we can't have nice things because you idiots went to see venom um and then i went to see venom and i, I kind of enjoyed it it's here's the thing is i think in a weird way this is one of the most clear cases of kind of old-fashioned movie star charisma making a film work in a way that i haven't seen in a while and that is because Tom Hardy is very fucking watchable. As much as he is doing a kind of weird American accent, and I don't quite know what he's going for at some points, he's just a he's just a very, very watchable screen presence. And I really can't chalk it, figure out how to chalk it up to anything more than that, because the movie in and of itself is nothing great. And it's very generic in terms of where the plotting goes. But it is kind of fun watching Tom Hardy talk to himself and go crazy. And at times he just really goes for it. Like there's a whole point where he jumps in a in a lobster tank and starts eating a live lobster. Um, you know, and it's, you know, it, 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 it's it's the, the whole sub romantic subplot with Michelle Williams is really stupid. I mean, the plot mechanics grind constantly through the movie to try and make yeah make the whole thing work. Riz Ahmed is really wasted in it. But weirdly, as I said, it is strangely watchable. And mm. I don't – in the same way that I can't really explain to you why Bad Times at the El Royale is such a, a disappointingly airless film in the end, I can't explain to you why Venom is watchable. It's 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 very peculiar. Um, mm. you know, like, like, we'll put this in context. I'm not saying like go out and – watch Venom. It's amazing. I'm very much saying like, this was not bad. It was not a shit show. And I would be happy enough to watch Tom Hardy play Venom again. That's that, that's where I'm coming from with this. It's nothing. It's, yeah. it's not a ringing endorsement. Yeah, it's a, a I'm surprised that, this did not suck. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say it's not a good movie. Um, then there's like a point at, I don't know if they're like after the first act or at about halfway or whatever. They're like something changes. And all of a sudden you just, I was into it and I really enjoyed the film. I mean, I've heard that from a handful of people now and uh, I don't know. I, I sometimes, I think it's also weirdly like weird. I found myself really Enjoying the fact that it felt like it was actually shot in San Francisco. It didn't feel like mm. Vancouver was doubling for San Francisco. And, like, San Francisco is just a visually nice city. So, it, you know, that all worked well. Mm. And then, again, I think possibly Tom Hardy's commitment to it and also the fact that the film was quite willing to just be fairly goofy a lot of the time really kind of, like, helped it a lot as well. I mean, yeah, um, 
he's not actually Venom that much either. Like, it's sort of like, it's a lot of him talking to himself, but him actually in the sim, as the symbiote, like the full thing you see in the trailer, you don't actually see it a lot. And I think that also helps a lot too, because it does mean that the film is still very much built around you watching Tom Hardy rather than Mm. watching a big CGI creature. And is this, is this a setup for subsequent? I mean, is this going to be a new franchise? I mean, it's made like, you know, four times its investment. It's done very, very well. Yeah. And of course, the funny thing, the funny thing was this film was originally supposed to be like, you know, Sony's attempt to get their own Deadpool off the ground by this was going to be like an R rated film. It was going to be like, you know, intense sort of grown up thing. And I, they, they cut out about like 40 minutes of the movie, apparently. Um, and I uh, obviously cut out everything that was kind of going to give it the R rating. And I, I kind of weirdly go like, well, I guess the studio was right. I guess they, I guess they won on that one because clearly the, uh, clearly it, it, you know, I, I'm sure a sizable amount of that, um, box office was teenage, was teenagers. So, I mean, you know, I guess movie business wins on this one. So, you know, that's, that's, that's me sitting here eating shit and, <laughs> uh, and, and admitting I was wrong. So there you go. Hmm. Nice. There will be a sequel, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I would imagine. But apparently Tom Hardy's for years been wanting to be in a comic book movie. Like he he lobbied hard to be the Punisher. He really wanted to He would have been he, a good at one Punisher. point really wanted to take over as Wolverine. You know, he's he's been trying mm. to get a com- be in a comic book movie for a long time. I mean, who doesn't want to be a fucking superhero? If you're a little boy growing up and you're an actor and he's been an actor since he was at least like in his like late teenage early 20 years, right? Um, yeah, he's been around for a while. So you, you want to be a fucking superhero, man. You want to you want to be a badass. You want to do those things. I mean, even I, as someone who looks kind of down at a lot of the fluff that comes out of the superhero genre, I'm like, man, it'd be fucking cool to play a superhero, of course. I I do kind of love, though, that, like, Tom Hardy has kind of become, like, king of the basic bros. Like, as in, like, you know, how, like, there's, like, there's so many, like, people who are just, like, not, like, particularly, like, film fans but seem to love Tom Hardy as this kind of epitome of masculinity, which I find hilarious because Tom Hardy's just a weird dude. And also he's like, he's like openly bisexual. He's like, he's not like your kind of like typical, like basic bro masculine guy. He's just like really built and looks a bit scary. If people want to see something really charming, he did this thing where he's being uh, interviewed and he's listening to children call in and ask him questions Oh yeah, that is super cute. And he responds to them. Go watch that. He's charming as fuck. He also did one where I th- he is um, he's getting asked questions about the film while uh, by, which are like brought to him by dogs. So he's like petting the dog while like answering questions that are like the dog has like taped. To well, his here's collar. the problem. There are so many actors that they're not like real humans. They have become they're memified, right? And and it's not just that they've become memes in some sort of digital representation of themselves. They've actually embodied that, and they sort of become the meme. And this is one of the things that's a problem, I think, with Los Angeles in general, is it really cultivates people becoming images, walking images, rather than people. And I think there's something super authentic about him. He just seems to, you know, really... <sighs> concern himself with the interests of the world like he got annoyed when that journalist asked him about his sexuality um but it wasn't annoyed in the way that like i don't know when sean penn gets annoyed at a journalist which it seems like he is maybe a little bit pretentious about his responses where tom hardy is just you know, actually the one not 
the one I loved was when he got asked in, in, um, in, uh, at, um, I think it was the can screening of Mad Max Fury Road, where like one of the journalists said to him, was it difficult being, uh, what was it? He said something about, he, he said something about like, was it difficult being in a, in a film surrounded by, um, you know, so many women? Um, and he just went, no. And then that was, that was kind of the end of it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's hard to explain, but there is just something without sounding kind of like cliche, but there is just something authentic and connected about him that a lot of actors, they're not as grounded. They're not as in it. So, I mean, kind of like Hugh Jackman, very different, but Hugh Jackman, he is fucking Wolverine jacked as shit motherfucker. And at the same time, he's like a Broadway actor and he's like a musical theater guy. You know, and that's why there are all these rumors about how he's gay and shit like that. And apparently people who work in the theater industry here in Sydney are like, it's not true at all. He just has – he's just a theater guy and people aren't used to well, seeing also, like, musical theater guys be straight. He's also been like you know? solidly married for a very long time to a pretty like normal woman. Like he's not like married to like a movie star or something right. like that. And I think that's kind of like – I think that's the weird thing that people – and I do think it's true with a lot of like Australian movie stars – is that they are just like actually fairly normal. Like it's like it's like how like Margot Robbie is married to like a second AD, you know, um, right. and you know Chris Hemsworth just always seems like really low key anytime you know he's being interviewed. I think there's something about the Aussie attitude where they're not like they they've sort of like deglammed in a certain way. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so anyway, Venom gets Jolly Ranchers, and I think what you're saying, Austin is that there is a difference between the telling of a story and the story itself. And then when we're sitting, hearing the story, we bring our own things to it. Could that be a segue, Austin? Segway. Grandfather's here. Can't you tell me I'm sick? I'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how is this sick? Huh? I brought you a special present. What is it? It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. It was a time when life didn't seem so complicated. Marriage is what brings us together today. What? 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 I'm killing myself once we reach the honeymoon suite. Wouldn't that be nice? A courtly age of gentle conversation. I will always come for you. But how can you be sure? This is true love. Oh, no. Is this a kissing book? No. Actually, there was a lot of treachery, peril, and revenge. Prepare to die. Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> There were affairs of state. But I've got my country's 500th anniversary to plan, my wedding to arrange, my wife to murder, and Gilda to frame for it. I'm swamped. And affairs of the heart. My Wesley will always come for me. Your Wesley is dead. I've seen worse. All right, so to the main segment now, we're going to be talking about Princess Bride. And of course, the reason that Kier used that segue is because the Princess Bride is a story about Columbo telling the kid from the Wonder Years a story that his father had told him. Uh, And by the way, that's Peter Falk telling Fred 
Well, Savage. Savage. Um, who I used to play at the same tennis camp with as a kid, uh, as a matter of fact. He was a baller tennis. Humble brag. Yeah, well, he, yeah, exactly. And he was. Was he better than you? He was better than me. <laughs> a lot better. A couple years older than me, too, but still. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so Peter Falk is telling the story. Grandpa's telling the story to the grandson who's homesick. And, uh, you know, the kid doesn't want to hear a story because it's not like a TV game or a video game or something like that. And so Peter Falk sits him down in kind of like his grumpy East Coast way and is like, when I was your age, television was called books. And I'm going to read a book to you that my father used to read to me and his father used to read to him. He's like the most classic grandpa (laughs) ever. It's perfect, man. And he's like, so I'm going to read this story to you now. And then uh, Fred Savage is like, okay, but, you know, is there kissing in this book? Is this like, is this a kissing book or I'll try to stay awake and, you know. You know, he's like totally not into it. And But anyway, they start telling uh, – he starts telling him this story uh, of the Princess Bride. And it's the story of Princess Buttercup who is uh, this, you know, beautiful young woman who is kind of in an upper class family, we'll say. And she ends up following in love with this farm boy uh, and they have this like – deep relation, this passionate relationship, you know, star-crossed lover sort of thing. He's the farm boy and she's the rich girl and they're not supposed to be together. And then he has ends up having to go away and um, she's like, oh, but I'll never see you again. And he has to go away and he's probably going to die. And she's like, oh, but, you know, what if you die? And he's like, death cannot stop true love and all this other shit. And it sounds super sentimental and funny and uh, kind of cheesy. And then, of course, there are points where Fred Savage is like, hold on, hold on. This is like sappy and lame. I thought you weren't going to tell me this kind of like cheesy girl stuff um and the grandpa's like hold your horses it keeps getting better and stuff like that there's sports there's fighting and fencing and you know giants and whatever else and so um it ends up happening that uh, they go back into the story and that many years later princess buttercup is being sworn off to marry the evil prince humperdinck uh and prince humperdinck is you know kind of he's this spoiled brat who's going to take over the throne when his father dies and his father's like this old fucking guy um and uh, so he is uh, – and he chooses his bride in the land and he chooses Buttercup because she's the most beautiful woman in all the land. So he chooses her and she's obviously not down with it but she's like, fuck it, I don't have a choice because this is the way that it works in this day and age. So then at some point uh, she ends up getting kidnapped by the man in black who is wearing a mask over his face and it ends up turning up that it's Wesley and Wesley, Wesley uh, her long-lost farm boy lover. Uh, he ends up rescuing her, and they end up starting up their relationship again. And even though he's been gone for five years, uh, it turns out that uh, he has kind of taken over this role. And the reason he wears all black is he's taken over this moniker of uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, who's been around for like 20 years or whatever. And it's basically just a character that different people fill up uh, and it's so that they can strike fear into the hearts of merchant sailors or whatever and make their shitloads of money as they do their pirate ship. Anyway, you get this amazing then adventure between the two of them as they're trying to rekindle their romance, get away from Humperdinck. Humperdinck then starts chasing them, and then along the way they run into this assorted cast of characters. You have Andre the Giant, you have uh, Inigo Montoya, who's played by, fuck, one of my favorite actors of all time, and his name just escaped my mind because he's a musical theater guy. Thank you, Mandy Patinkin, who was in Sunday in the Park with George, who's fucking brilliant if you've only ever seen him on like criminal minds or whatever then you're missing out because he was amazing as a broadway actor phenomenal singer mandy patinkin then of course wallace sean is in there playing the is it vicini is that his name vizzini yeah. vizzini um and he is you never you never compete with a uh a, a sicilian when death is on the line ha 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 and then he falls over dead um 
Anyway, so he there's all these different obstacles and shit like that, and it's just this wonderful story. Billy Crystal shows up at one point as uh, as this like magician who has this little pill that he Miracle Max. Yeah, Miracle Max. It's this little chocolate. It's like a little Snickers, little bite sized Snickers thing that he coats and it's supposed to bring the man in black back to life after he dies at one point. And then they storm the castle and they rescue Princess buttercup and it's this it's a fantasy story and it's just fucking wonderful and i love it and then of course they live happily ever after and then of course the redemptive moment for fred savage is at the end when there's going to be the big romantic culminating kiss when buttercup and wesley do finally get back together the grandpa closes the book and says well i don't want to read it anymore because you don't want to know about the great kiss and then fred savage is like well i don't mind anymore so you can go ahead and read it do you think because he's grown up he's matured do you think in that moment he started experiencing puberty yep it's like that's it like the story is over eight, the course of that that story, yes, like puberty happens yes, to him. Yes, he is. Uh, he's been ushered into manhood at this point. He has learned that girls don't have cooties anymore. So I, I have a very, I have a very important question to ask you. Yeah. Um. So who would win in a sword fight between uh, the Man in Black slash Dread Pirate Robert slash Wesley and Mad Mardigan, the greatest swordsman ever? <laughs> I mean, they're different styles of fighting because. Uh, the Man in Black is more of like fencing, whereas Mad Mardigans is more like that medieval heavy sword kind of fighting. Um, I mean, I'm sure you have to learn the skills of both, right, in a day and age, but they, they carry different swords. I don't know, man. That's tough. I am tempted to believe that the Dread Pirate Roberts is a more skillful swordsman. And you saw the some of those gymnastic moves that he pulls off. You know, like even Inigo Montoya, who dedicated his life like 20 years or whatever it was to the sport of fencing, even he is amazed by the man in black's skills. So I'm going to say the man in black is a more accomplished fencer. See, it's it's interesting, Austin, that um, as a kid, clearly you were into a whole bunch of nerd shit and yet you didn't grow up to be a nerd. Yeah, it's it is interesting. I mean, I, I guess I've got that. But then it's the same way that I was also around like a bunch of designer shit and theater shit, and I am not gay either, you know? <laughs> what, Austin, is that you saying that homosexuality is a choice? I mean, my dad thought that he wouldn't want me to be an Oliver because he thought that I would turn gay. Like, that was his thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. No, but I mean, fair I just enough. have these attachments to these things that's like... I like design and art and theater, and I'm not gay, and I also like, you know, some nerd shit, but I'm not a nerd either, you know? It's just, I don't know. I, how do you explain what you are? I don't believe that it's choice or biological. I think it's much more well, complex, well, the dialectical relationship between those two things here, but we don't have to get into that right now. But the point is, well, my favorite I don't thing, know my how favorite I, thing how you've I ever am. said. My favorite thing you've ever said on the podcast is, uh, is I just liked vagina too much. It's, I think that's what it is, man. I don't know, dude. I mean, I'm I'm 30% gay, and I guess uh, in another register, I'm 30% nerd. So, you know. <laughs> um. So uh, it's you know, th- This is a kind of this is a funny movie in many ways because this is not a movie I actually grew up with. I think I saw it like I think I saw like the last 30 minutes of it at like a summer camp or something at one point. So I was like always aware that it existed. But I don't think I actually sat through the whole thing until I was in university when I was like 22. Like it was like um, and but it's like, again, by that point, I'd always heard about it. And it was one of these films that people like loved. 
And mm. so weirdly, yeah. my first reaction to it was I watched it and I was like, this movie looks cheap as shit. This score is fucking awful. Like I I'm like, this is fine. I don't really get what people's like big thing about it is. So I didn't watch it for like another seven, eight years. And then I watched it with Alex like about a year ago, I think it was, because it was just on Amazon Prime. It was one of those ones where, again, I'm like, everyone talks about this. Maybe we should watch it because she'd, she'd never seen it. And I, it started working for me a lot more on the second go. And then this time watching it last night, I was like, yeah, no, I like this movie. It's like it's it, it is weirdly, I think, like one of those films where the familiar your, your familiarity with it starts to make it work better for you. Mm. You think? Well, I mean, especially if you're like me, who's not had it, didn't have it as a childhood film, you know, and I still I still have I still think this film is really flatly shot and looks cheap as shit. Um, it's I don't think Rob Reiner has ever been the most visually interesting director. And I think this film is very disappointingly flat looking a lot of it, especially when you consider it's a kind of. Uh, it's supposed to be a kind of fantasy film. It weirdly looks very, it, you know, a lot of the sets borderline look like they're made out of cardboard, you know, and that sort of whole like fake cliff sequence that they do the, that they do the, uh, the fighting on. I mean, ever the rocks just like look like they're made of styrofoam. It just looks really disappointingly cheap. Um, but I think what really carries it through is that William Goldman, you know, is a really, has, has a really witty script. It's based off of his book, which, I looked into this. Do you, have you ever – you've never read the original book, I'm assuming. I have not, actually. I've read bits of it, but only after the fact. Because the book is even nuttier and more meta than the movie. Is it? Because in the book, it's like based off – so it's – William Goldman is a character himself in the book who got read The Princess Bride as a child and is – gave it to his son – to uh to read and his son says it's boring so then he goes so the the book is him adapting the book into trying to make it more interesting for his kid so it's like he's cutting out sections of it and basically like explaining why he's making the changes to it as it's happening you know and also within the universe of the book that he's like as in him writing the book it all of this is actual historical things that happened like it's not a fantasy story. These were actual. These are based off real people. So it's uh, it's weird. Like it's it's a whole other weird levels of meta that are going on in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's about like cause William Goldman wrote the screenplay and the book. Yeah, he wrote the original book. It came out in like nineteen seventy three, and then he adapted the book himself. Okay, and and so. Is is the story in the movie like totally taking license with regards to other things? Like I I don't know. Have you read the book? Did you say or you just know about it? No, I just um, Cinefix does a, a video series called What's the Difference, where they look at the difference between a book that the the, uh, the difference in an adaptation of a movie with its book original book, um, and I think actually. It's a pretty faithful adaptation for the most part. Um, I think they take out a few characters. They compress a lot of things. Um, they sort of, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of just kind of your usual adaptation things. But actually the thing they do is they really simplify down the concept of what the book is, of, um, of the sort of framing device of the story. Mm, okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd be curious. I'd be down to go back and read the book just because the movie has had such an impact on my upbringing in the sense that, I mean, it's one of those ones that, again, like, you know, you said you've watched Jurassic Park more times than you can count. I've watched Top Gun, Karate Kid, this, Days of Thunder, a handful of others, so many times that I, I wouldn't even be able to calculate it. And this one Which might is be weirdly, the most. It's like, I feel it's quite fascinating how you and my childhood films are so different. Like, we didn't, like, it's funny how little a lot of the time, like, the films of your childhood don't line up with the films of mine. Mm. Like, uh, you know, considering we're from similar-ish enough kind of, like, cultural backgrounds. It, it, it's, um, I find it, um, I, I, I just find it kind of funny that we, um, that, you know, again, like, Princess Bride was not a film I grew up with, um, you know, Top Gun was not a film I grew up with. Like, you know, these... So, I mean, and, and I think there's always something really fascinating because, to me, I think so much of The Princess Bride's reputation comes from the fact that, generationally, you're at a point where the people who are sort of the main sort of force of nostalgia, uh, you know, who are in that kind of, like, age range are the people who grew up with The Princess Bride. You know, it's like, so all the YouTubers and people who make these kind of videos on this type of stuff, there are people who grew up with The Princess Bride. Right. Um, and so, and that's the thing that I'm kind of saying. I'm not sure I think The Princess Bride is actually that amazing a movie. It's very endearing because I think the, because um, I think it's very charming and I think a lot of the, and I think, uh, I, you know, I think the performers are great and I think it's a kind of fun, witty script. Mm. And so this was your first time really kind of enjoying the film. Yeah, I well, I think I enjoyed it more the second time I watched it. I like, okay. I mean, I like this period of Rob Reiner, you know. But, you know, again, I would say that out of the films he made from This Is Spinal Tap all the way through to um, North, you know, I've, you know, stopping at North, um, I think stop before North. I, I think this is probably the one I would I like the least because you have This Is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery and A Few Good Men, which is a great run of films. And out of that. Probably this is my least favorite of the lot. Really? Um, okay. Because I just, again, part of me, I think, is he's not a very fantastical director. He's very meat and potatoes in terms of the way he does. And a lot of what works with him is that he gets great actors and a witty script and has a really good grasp <laughs> of tone. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I just find, I feel like I wish this film had a little bit more of a, a magical, fantastical touch to it. It feels, and maybe that's part of it. Maybe... Some of the charm is the fact that it looks kind of so ropey and the 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 score sounds like something out of like an old 30s serial, you know, but it, it sounds to, and I don't know if maybe it it's 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 because of this film that this is true, but it feels like a score that I would have heard on like bad, cheap television in like the 90s. Hmm. <laughs> I, I hate the score for this film. I really do. I find it really distracting. Yeah, I saw you noticed that, or I, I noticed that you wrote that on Facebook earlier, where you said something like, "It's a movie that I enjoy, but I fucking hate the score." Yeah, which I don't know. I'm, weirdly, I seem to be the only one. Like, I can find no other evidence of anybody else saying they hate the score, but I really hate the score in this film. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's like that weird thing too, where I don't want to seem unenthusiastic because I liked the film and there's a lot of things to like about it. Like again, like that whole scene with the, uh, you know, I, I really like the whole scene where, you know, with, with the, the poison cups where he, him and 
Wallace Shawn are kind of like competing over, you know, who, which cup he put the poison in. You know, it has a lot of great bits to it that I really like. I just always think that it looks so incredibly cheap. Like the fact that it just looks like they got costumes out of like from a local Shakespeare production and they just was like, oh, we'll just go up on that hill in England somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just like no other work has been put into it beyond that. See, I agree. I agree with something you said a minute ago. I kind of think that's intentional. And I feel like that adds to the charm of the film. Is Which is fair enough. Yeah. I acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's Yeah, like the set the set designs are clearly set pieces. Like there's no realism here. It's not like you know, no. like even even a film like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, like when they're in the forest, the way that they build the homes and shit like that, or the way that they build the the kind of treehouse stuff, it kinda looks like, okay, that's kinda cool looking and relatively authentic and you look embedded and the people are dirty and their costumes look pretty nice. Whereas you look at this, which is around like a similar time period, I guess. Sort of. Well, actually, actually, the other one, the, the thing to compare it to, I'd say, is, is Willow. This is basically pretty much they come out about a year apart from each other. Yeah, I guess, but um, they're so different aesthetically to me. Eh, you know? I guess. But you're right. Okay, so let's take let's take the Elwyn village and the way that that looks compared to, like, when the Brute Squad is going through and, like, tearing shit apart and you're looking at the homes or, you know, the bit when, uh, when Andre the Giant's like, everybody move! I mean, it's... They're clearly extras on a set piece that was designed, like, in just a field that they had somewhere in England or wherever it was that they filmed it. Whereas Willow looks more embedded, you know? It looks more Mm. kind of like that this is actually a village in a shire tucked up against the hills in England, rather than just like, here's here's a grassy... What you might refer to as the used universe. It's a universe that looks like it exists, and it's been... There you go. Things have been used and gotten dirty and old. That's perfect. Yeah, I think that's the difference. Yeah. But see, again, I do think that that's part of the reason... It adds to the fantasy element of this film because it's so not authentic, (laughs) you know? It's like a a postmodern fantasy, in a way, because there is a real detachment from... The usedness, let's say, of the land, of the weapons, of the costumes, of the world. And it's very much, it's like a, a degree removed, if you will, from the truth. Because, and, and for me, I think there's something kind of charming about that. Now, and I know sometimes I look at stuff like that and I'm like, oh my god, like, they weren't trying. And maybe it's, again, because I just have such a positive attachment to this film that to me I'm, I'm forgiving them so much. And I'm like, oh, they must have done it on purpose. But... I feel like they had to have done this on purpose. This isn't like fucking Uva Bull when he's making Blood Rain, which also yeah. has a lack of usedness to it as well, right? Well, and I, I, I think the, the the problem is we're going down a route now where I feel like I'm shitting on this movie and I don't mean to shit on it because I actually, like I said, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm, I think I'm more trying to explain what some of my initial barriers were when I think I didn't like the film that much the first time I watched it. Um, especially too, because it was one of those films that by the time I watched it, so many of the big bits had already been spoiled to me. Cause it's such a film that's within the world of kind of like cinema nerds that, you know, like everybody kind of like ends up, you know, you, you, you hear about so many of these bits beforehand, you know, you hear so many of the lines beforehand. And so it's like, I think like when I watched it about a year ago, it was almost like I got to watch it without the weight of those expectations and without, you know, and just kind of let it was able to kind of breathe on its own a little bit more. And I mean, the point where the film kind of kicks into me is like when you have the banter between um, 
between um, Mandy Patinkin and Carrie Ewells um, when they have the kind of the big uh, the big sword fight. And again, I, I think there's there's that that fun thing I just like so much of this kind of weird gallantry between them, where you know he gets up, he's like, oh, I I, I wouldn't kill you until you've had a chance to rest. Yeah, he's like, no, you no, know? no, no, we'll wait until you're ready. <laughs> Like, okay. And then they kind of bond, and it's really, it's really cute. And then yeah. it's, it's, they just have this kind of like a, that whole sort of thing where it's like, well, you know, uh, you're very good, but I have a secret. I'm not actually left-handed. Yeah. And then, you know, and then they keep, they keep going. It's just, it's a really, it's just a really kind of like fun. Yeah, it's a really, really fun scene. And that's the film point where the film really comes alive to me. And it kind of mm. like, and it, it starts working for me pretty much through till the end. Hmm. Yeah, I mean that scene is probably probably the most iconic scene from the film. Either that one or the scene with Vicini when they're sitting down with the wine, the poison wine. Yeah. Those are the two. And and even even if it's that scene with the man in black, it starts before that fight scene. It starts with the he didn't fall inconceivable. And then Inigo says you keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Oh yeah. Well, that's become such a meme too right. because like that's that's like a it's like a total gif that gets reused <laughs> right. a lot. Right. So that I mean that whole sequence I guess we would say is probably the most iconic. The funny thing is that people forget about the one with Andre the Giant, which is also I think kind of cute oh, yeah. and charming. Where Andre the Giant, you well, know, also, throws something... the rock at his head and he's like, I didn't have to miss. And he's like, I believe you, <laughs> you know? Well, actually, the funny thing is I don't think Andre the Giant really comes off like a great actor. But I do think one of the things that you can tell is you can tell that because he comes from the world of wrestling, he knows how to be present in the scene. Like he knows how to like mm. be just a charming presence, even if his acting isn't that great, because he kind of sounds very much like he's just repeating the lines a lot of the time like he doesn't i also like he's got quite a thick accent um but i think there's something that's very he, he is just i think there was this is like weirdly i think almost kind of going back to my tom hardy thing is uh i think there's tom hardy appeals to this certain idea that there's something very charming about watching a very masculine dude who is um you know, with like puppies or like talking to children. Like mm. I recently posted because like there's that whole thing with Pierce Morgan complaining about uh, Daniel Craig using a pampoose and how it wasn't uh, manly. And I was just sort of saying how I think like one of the most adorable things in the world, seeing like a manly dude holding a baby. It's just the cutest thing ever, um, you know, or like a manly dude with like a puppy. Maybe this is like some weird gay part of me coming out. I have no idea, <laughs> but I do think that's the cutest fucking thing in the world is like what, looking at like the rock with a baby is fucking adorable. Um, but yeah, so I, I think, I think there's something that is so just really sweet about Andre the giant because he's this, this giant human being, but he just seems so kind of like, docile and friendly mm. yeah I, I i agree and from what everybody says when you watch like behind the scenes footage on the film they all say that that's kind of just how he was as a human mm. you know i mean he's this massive massive dude from fucking greenland with this crazy accent he was I like he was french but wasn't he from greenland i thought he was french well, i thought it was from fucking I'll look this up greenland yeah uh he was Born in Malin, France, and died in Paris. Oh, I thought he was fucking from Greenland or something like that. Oh, never mind. It's because they talk about that in the movie. <laughs> they, so he says, do you want me to this send you back to where you're from? Unemployed in Greenland? That's what Vicini says at one point. <laughs> you do know 
that <laughs> unlike the book, this is not based on real historical events. <laughs> That's what it is. Oh Jesus! I see. I'm. I don't even know what's real and what's fantasy anymore. Um, that's what it is. It's the bit. That's so fucking funny. Um, but yeah. But everybody says the same thing about him that he is was just like that. That he was just the sweetest guy that you would imagine. Because again, he was the heel in the World Wrestling Federation. He was a bad guy. Yeah. You know, Hulk Hogan was the good guy, and so he was the bad guy. But apparently, he was just this big, loving, huge guy. You know. Big, well, big I mean, man, I, big I, heart, I, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, too, like, he, because of, like, you know, sort of his height and his sort of, like, physical, you know, it, it, you know, his physique, I think it was, he unfortunately died quite young. He was only 46 when he died. Um, and I, you know, I think he was seven feet, four inches tall, which is, you know, it, it's, it's true with an awful lot of very big guys is that they oftentimes, um, as they get older, they, you know, their bodies give out much quicker and they don't, um, they don't live as long. So it's, no, it's a real, it's, it's a real shame. Cause he did just sound like a really, everybody like this, he, he does seem to have kind of just been this like famously sweethearted guy. Have you seen any other films that he's been in? No, this is the only film that I, that I've ever seen of him. I don't, you know, looking at his, like, he'd mostly, other than this, seems, well, he's in Conan the Destroyer, apparently uncredited. So I assume maybe he's, like, playing, like, a creature or something like that. Yeah. Um, he's in, he's, he's yeah. in Zorro? Is he? The 1990 version? The fuck is that? I don't even know about that. That's, I don't even know what, because Oh, it's a TV, it was, it was a drama like a, series. It was on the Family Channel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, looking at his filmography, I mean, there's not a, there's nothing really that sticks out to me. He was in uh, some episodes of some TV shows and stuff like that. Um, and I think actually this kind of speaks to a really interesting thing within this film because I I really do think that this is a really great example of where casting everything right really makes the film work because I feel like everybody it's like. You walk, you look at everybody in their part, and you can't really imagine anybody else doing that part now. What do you mean? As in, like you know, the the thing is, like it, it's like it, it's like the film. I think there's something to be said about how important the process of casting is, and you put the right actors in the right part, and the film works. And it's very hard to imagine the Princess Bride with anybody other than the actors who are in it. Like you know, like. Uh, you can't really imagine anybody else besides Mandy Patinkin playing that part. You can't imagine anybody else besides Andre the Giant playing that part. You can't imagine anybody else besides uh, Robin Wright in that part. They 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 become so much. Im- they embody the characters in, in such a, or at least they make the characters their own. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got you. I got you. I mean, do you have a favorite character in this film? Kind of thinking about this. I actually, weirdly, surprisingly enough. I actually really like, um, I like Wesley a lot. I mean, Wesley in all his different iterations, you know, I find him very charming and it's weird too, because Carrie L, Carrie L's or whatever, have I've ever say his name, he didn't really go and have much of a career after this. And I kind of tried to figure out, I was like looking through his filmography and I was kind of trying to figure out what went wrong because you kind of sit there and you go like, it was there like a couple of big flops or something that really like you know, sort of like threw him off the beaten track. 
And maybe that's true, but at the same time, like, I don't look at this and go, like, he had a bunch of, like... Because, I mean, he was playing really small supporting roles almost immediately after this. It's not like this led to him being the lead in a bunch of things. Like, he's in Days of Thunder, where he's kind of, you know, uh, he's... Who's he in Days of Thunder again? Is he the... He's the he's a competing driver, isn't he? Yeah, because Cole guy. Trickle is the Tom Cruise guy. He's the other yeah. dude. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's the bad guy. Um, and then he's in Hot Shots as, like, the guy <laughs> who's, like, the joke on Goose. Then he's, like, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is, like, a small part. And then his next lead is Robin Hood Men in Tights, which is six years after The Princess Bride. And it just seems weird that this wasn't, like, a bigger launch pad for him as a leading man. Because he's actually very charismatic in the lead role. Right. Absolutely. And then I didn't see him in, after that until fucking Saw. Well, the really funny thing is there was... Um, oh, no. What was the movie with Alicia he, Silverstone? When, Crush. Oh, The Crush. Yes. Um, But, like, the funny thing is, right, is that I... I watched uh, this interview with him, which was kind of painfully bad, when... Because he was in... Saw, I want to say Saw 7 or Saw 6, where the whole thing was they brought back Dr. Gordon. And it was like he was being interviewed by this guy who was like clearly a big Saw fanboy. And he's clearly like a guy who's like, I guess this is what I'm making money off now doing being in the Saw films. And he's like trying to toe the line and be really nice. But the guy keeps asking him like questions like, like, uh, oh, I'm going to do like a uh, it's like it's one of those things where somebody's thought of like a gimmick thing to do during the interview, but hasn't really checked out with like the actor or his publicist about it. So he's like kind of asking him like, OK, so which film is this trap from? And Carrie Ewells is like, I, I don't know, five, you know, he just he clearly doesn't know what like he, he clearly hasn't really been watching the series. Um, and and it's just it's, it's really sad because you kind of feel like this guy, this is just. This is his. This is this is where he is now. This is what his. This is what his career is. And it's. And at one point, the kind of goes like, so. I mean, are the, what what are the kind of main? Is do people kind of recognize you for Saw? Like, what's the main thing you're known for? He's like, yeah, mostly Saw and the Princess Bride. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's. I just. I mean, maybe I don't know. For all I know, maybe he's a horrible asshole and he's terrible to work with, and that's the whole reason why. But it just kind of feels like you know he just there's something about him that just seems really sad in that mm. in that interview. Um, and I, and I do like think, and again, he's, he's got a very witty script behind him, but I, I, I think his comic timing is great. And I think he's actually very charming in the lead. I actually, weirdly, my problems much more come down with Robin Wright. It's not her specifically. I just think Buttercup is a boring ass character. Do you think so? Yeah. I think she's really underwhelming. Interesting. I mean. Yeah, I mean, so, I guess that. I mean, apparently she is kind of a weak. She is bo- kind of a weak damsel in distress type. Yeah, well, they just don't really do much with her. And actually, apparently in the book, she's like really stupid, and they kind of like they like um, tamp that down a bit. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, she just feels really like directionless and kind of just very. You, there's like a kind of hint at one point like when she pushes Wesley down the hill initially that you're kind of like, oh, maybe she's going to be a bit stronger. But then she just loses everything. She just becomes boring. And then she's like that whole thing where she's like, oh, I married him. Did you say I do? Um, no. Well, then you're not married, are you? It just, yeah. It's I'm just, just kind of like, yeah, oh, yeah. She's, she's kind of ditzy. And yeah the, yeah, the character is. Yeah, of course. Of course, it's not exactly. She's very much kind of like she's she's window dressing. Definitely. It doesn't pass the Bechtel test. No, it definitely does not. Um, yeah. 
And, and you know, it's, it's, it's so, I mean, like, but otherwise, I mean, I, I think, again, I, I think it's so rich because you also have, like, Wallace Shawn comes in and kind of, like, really, like, steals this film for, like, ten minutes. And then, uh, you know, Billy Crystal comes in and steals the film for a scene. You know, it's like you have a lot of these kind of, like, bit part players who really come in and do great work. Christopher Guest is weirdly playing a very straight character. Which one is Christopher Guest? Is he the, the Christopher Guest is man? the man with six fingers. Yeah, yeah, yeah six-fingered yeah. man. Okay. I mean... Which, of course, Christopher Guest, you know, is obviously famous for making his sort of improvisation movies like uh, Best in Show and, of course, was one of the members of Spinal Tap. And, you know, it's right. so... He's it's fantastic. Very he's weird. actually he's fantastic. He's very straight villain. It's strange, but I think he's... He's remember you know we talked about this before where it's like sometimes every word that comes out of their mouth, they're savoring it. Yeah. He's kind of got that sort of thing where he is just really he's talking kind of slow and he really enjoys what he's saying. He really en- he- enjoys the pain that he's inflicting on Wesley. He really enjoys when uh he's stabbed Inigo Montoya and he's like, "Are you still trying to win?" You know? I mean, it's like he's just <laughs> he's in it and it's kind he's of actually, He's doing the pantomime villain thing really well without like overdoing yes. it. Like he's not like He's he's got like this sort of nice undercurrent of, of malevolence without kind of like be, turning into like a mustache twirling villain. Yeah, precisely. He's almost must, mustache twirling, but in a way that it still is grounded. Well, and I think I think the funny thing about it too is like I I think again I I think one of the fun things about the film is kind of like where it's kind of dealing with these ideas of these sort of fairy tale tropes and then kind of having like a lot of fun with them. Like, so I mean, like when like the albino comes up and initially starts speaking in that weird sort of raspy sort of like uh way that you expect a henchman to, and then he sort of like coughs and starts speaking totally normally, mm. you know? And I think that's kind of very much the fun element is the weird kind of self-aware elements to it, where it is aware of its own, of how it's kind of puncturing some of these ideas of sort of fairy tale, fairy tale storytelling and fairy tale characters. And, you know, and I, I think that's definitely where a lot of the entertainment factor comes. Cause I'm also not a really much of a fantasy fan, which is another hill that this film has to get up. And I think actually why I end up liking it is generally because the film isn't really a straight fantasy film. What do you think it is? Well, I think it's, I mean, I suppose in a broad sense, it is a fantasy film, but you know what I mean? It's not a sort of traditional fantasy film. The way something like Willow is a much more traditional fantasy film. You know, it's 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 more a self-aware. I don't even want to say parody because parody feels too strong, but it's a kind of self-aware kind of uh, kind of having fun with the notion of it. I I don't quite know because, again, satire feels like too strong. Right. That's why I kind of said it's kind of like this postmodern because it's like detached. There's like an ironic yeah. detachment to it, you know? Yeah. And um, it's not that it's not serious. It's not that it, it it doesn't like really explore themes of like love and revenge and things like that. It does. And then at the same time, it's not like it's um, it's not like it's too jokey where it's, you know, a guy's got six fingers and they're these big rats and, um, you know, they've got these like sputtering flames that fly up in the forest, which is kind of goofy and silly and it has these elements that it kind of weaves together. Well, and and the, the fact that they refer to them as like, uh, uh, what was it? Um, R-O- R-O-U-S's, the rodents of unusual R-O-U-S. size. R-O-U-S, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
rodents of unusual size. Yeah, it's 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 again, it's it's that kind of fun, self-aware kind of like gag, um, you know, because, again, they're aware that the concept of a, of a of a giant scary rat is ridiculous or like things like the shrieking eels. They're like <laughs> the deliberately absurd right. sounding that, sort of fantasy Those creatures. Those are the shrieking eels. And they're not like even they're terrible animatronic eels. <laughs> yeah. But actually, at the same time, one of the things that I do really like is I like how Wesley, more than not, more often than not, defeats people by outthinking them. It's like how he outmaneuvers the Sicilian by just by by sort of like tricking him into drinking the poison. Or at the end where he gets, uh, you know, uh, Prince Humperdinck to um, uh, to basically... Um, yeah, he, he sort of like tricks him by making him like, even though he can't actually move, he, he basically tricks him into just like giving up his sword because he thinks like he'll, uh, uh, because he thinks he'll be able to like kill him. It's with the, the whole, that whole, um, to the pain speech. Oh, I love that speech. Yeah. He's like to the death. No, to the pain. He's like, I'm not sure I'm familiar with that. And he totally bluffs him right with, I'm going to cut off your, yeah, he bluffs I'm going to cut off your tongue and your nose and your eyes and your limbs and then he's like and my ears I get it and he's like no wrong your ears you keep <laughs> oh because I want I want every time a, a weeping babe walks by you and every time a, a person shrieks I want you to fully hear them say oh god what is that thing like that speech is just so funny man <laughs> well and I think that's the thing I like the fact that Wesley is just kind of bluffing his way through a lot of the film. Right. And again, even like that whole sort of thing of him like managing to just uh, to, to endear himself to the Dread Pirate Roberts and the Dread Pirate Roberts giving him his moniker and the whole idea that the Dread Pirate Roberts is just a concept and that it's a moniker that gets passed down from person to person because it's like basically like a brand. Right. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, again, all of those are like really kind of fun ideas and kind of on this sort of the, you know, and, and again, kind of, spin, you know, fun spins on the whole sort of fairy tale mythos. Um, mm. And yeah, and so it's a film that, yeah, weirdly, I, I, I like and I enjoy. I, I think the weird part of it is that because I don't love it, it makes people, it makes me weirdly feel like I'm like the ghost at the feast or I'm like the Ebenezer Scrooge where, cause again, cause it's not this thing where I grew up with it as a child. And so therefore everything about it is second nature. It's like when I watch Jurassic Park, how I can like remember pretty much the entire film verbatim. That's what this film is to an awful lot of people. And that's not what it is to me. It's a film that I've watched, that I've watched like three times and you know, I like enough, but I don't, again, within Rob Reiner's oeuvre would not be the film I would go to first. So let's talk about the other films that you mentioned. Misery, Harry, When Harry Met Sally. Um, what, yeah. What, uh, so he comes up, so he starts off with um, This is Spinal Tap. Which, okay, so here's the weird is, thing. I don't love This is Spinal Tap. Again, This is Spinal Tap is a film I watched when I was a teenager. Okay. And I think that helped a lot. Mm. Because, again, it's one of those films that I know so many of the scenes now. So it's like... I, rec- so even I like, recently rewatched it. That's why. Yeah. I recently rewatched it. Yeah, and this. that's... Funnily enough, because I rewatched it about a year ago with Alex, and Alex really didn't take to it. Yeah, so I watched this uh, beginning of this year uh, with my friend, his band, and 
their father, who it, it, like has been in the record industry forever, and he still manages bands. He fucking loves the movie because for him, it's first of all he's he's in his like what late fifties, early sixties, or whatever. Maybe he's in his his mid sixties even. So this was like a film of his younger years, right? And yeah. um, so he loves that, and because it's a kind of like piss take on the music industry. So he loves that shit, right? Well, and and, I will say that I I've I I make videos, I make music videos, and. You know, I have worked with a bunch of quite older bands, um, like people from that era. Right. And I will say that I, I've basically worked with Spinal Tap. Like, I, you know, <laughs> it's, it, it's very true. The right. entire film rings very true. Right. So, so, so sitting with them, I kind of was like, oh, this will be an interesting experience. The father loved the movie, but the son did not. And then a couple of the, of the other band members were there. They didn't like it either. And I was kind of like, yeah, I guess... I don't know. It didn't do it for me either. I don't know. Like, there are some bits that are funny, but as a whole, I was kind of like, okay. It just, it seems like a, an SNL sketch that was taken too long. And I, I can totally understand that. Um, I think also because the mockumentary thing kind of became a much more prevalent thing after it as well, I think it's sort of, it's one of those films that has been often copied in terms of style. Um, but like, they, the whole thing when they, originally sort of made it was that they were trying to make it authentically feel like it was actually a documentary about a real band. And I think the, I think that's something that's been kind of, like I said, I think it's, it's a style that people that has become much more prevalent now, you know, in fact, in, 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 in the sense that it's, it's become even like a very prevalent style on television. Like, you know, things like the office are very much coming off of the style of what spinal tap is. Um, so I don't know. I I think it's also one of those films that I have a lot of respect for its place in cinema as well. So I think that also like goes into it. But again, I think it helps that I saw it when I was younger. Sure. Um, Then you have the sure thing, which I haven't honestly seen since I was a teenager in my early 20s. Perhaps in the Me Too era, the sure thing would seem weird. I don't know. But it's a very kind of, I think, kind of underrated, charming 80s romantic comedy. Have you seen the sure thing? No, I actually was just looking at it. when you mentioned this like five or six film uh, stretch that he did. I was like, I don't even know what that is. So no. Well, basically, uh, John Cusack is a college student who's in university in the East. He's a virgin and doesn't really kind of like is a bit awkward around girls. Um, and his friend who's in the West Coast is like, you need to come out, hang out in the West Coast. There's this girl here who's an absolute sure thing. You'll definitely hook up with her. So he goes on this road trip, and along the way, uh, he ends up uh, meeting and sort of teaming up with um, Daphne Zuniga, um, and they kind of have like one of the classic kind of romantic comedy. They don't like each other at first. And then, you know, as the trip goes on, they slowly start to like, like each other more, you know, and then by the time they get there, it's kind of like this whole thing of, does he still want to go through with the sure thing? Or does he want to, you know, or, or is, 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 is this true love? That sort of thing. It's very charming. John Cusack in classic eighties form is, is great. I really like it, but I haven't watched it in 15, 20 years. So I don't know okay. if, uh, well, maybe not that long. Like maybe ten years, but like the, um, the 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 sexual politics of it may seem very weird now. I don't know. I, I I don't know. Perhaps it's still great. I I don't know. But I just really liked it. I've seen it like a couple of times. I really liked it when I saw it. Stand by me, which is just that's a fucking amazing classic. Movie. Yeah, it just it makes you it 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 makes me. Crawl, you know, crawl up in a little ball of emotion at the end. It's just like it's it's just 
wonderful. Well, you're a su- um, you are a sucker for coming of age stories, anyways, and this is kind of like a nostalgia boys together. They're not in. Are they in Texas? I mean, they're somewhere in. No, they're in. Um, they're in. Well, they're in Maine. Well, actually, the book is set in Maine because it's Stephen King. But actually, Rob Reiner reset the film in Oregon. Okay, so they're in like a more rural area where it's like. When you're a kid, you go out and you swim in rivers and you jump on trees and you go on it's adventures like, and you you're 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 learning about what it means to be a man and you're bonding with people and plus it's like it's like dad boomer nostalgia shit totally and, shit and you love gets me, you, you know? love that yeah exactly yeah um so then you have quite possibly the greatest romantic comedy ever made which is when Harry Hansen, <laughs> well okay so it makes the princess bride after Stand by Me but then you have quite possibly the greatest romantic comedy ever made which is when Harry met Sally I mean that um, film kind of revolutionized rom-coms that like at that point rom-coms became something different moving forward into the 90s and then into the 2000s don't you think Yeah it is kind of like it, it is kind of the the quintessential kind of set um setup for how the rom-com will go for the next decade Right um And it's kind of like, and again, I think it's because, again, it's a film that works so well because of just the charm and chemistry of its class and the wittiness of the script. And it's like, and it's, it's just, it's, it's fucking great. I love When Harry Met Sally. Um, Except I have one weird thing about When Harry Met Sally, which is that I kind of don't want them to get together at the end. I kind (laughs) of want them to stay friends, which is, I know sounds weird, but I kind of, that's always been kind of my weird thing with it is that I don't, is that I kind of wish he would come to the party and be like, you know, it's fine. We could just be friends. Let's just be friends. And then that's it. I, I kind of just, it feels like, I don't know. It feels like too much of a cop out that they do end up together. I, I, I would have to go into a whole episode to explain why that's a, why I have that feeling about it. It's, it's complicated and long winded, but it's my weird thing about when Harry met Sally. Anyway, hmm. next up is weirdly a film that I feel shouldn't work. Like, I don't think Rob Reiner is the obvious person to make a horror film, but misery really works. And I think it's because of the fact that he doesn't really shoot it that much like a horror film. Mm. It's actually, it's almost like he shoots it like a drama. I kind of, in my mind, it is a drama. I don't think of it as a horror film. I think of it as a drama thriller, you know? And I mean... And I mean, and I think that's one of the things that you can very much content, you can very much commend Rob Reiner for as a director is that he is great at casting actors and giving them breathing room to really create a character and do something, you know, really great. Like he's, I, I think he also, he has a really good eye, ear for dialogue and a really good ear for a witty script. And I think Misery is a really great script. And I just think it's a, I think it's a really fantastic handling of the material. And I think both James Caan, I mean, Kathy Bates is fucking amazing in that film. Um, and I think, um, and so yeah, Misery's great. And then you have A Few Good Men, which is one of the most just ridiculously watchable films. Like, I probably rewatch uh, A Few Good Men probably around once a year, just because it's just, just want to sit in that sort of Aaron Sorkin dialogue and just listen to people be witty to each other. And so, which one's this one? A Few Good Men. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, that's because it's Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I mean, that's like, I, so I, if, if Rob Reiner's success is making Aaron Sorkin and William Goldman films, like, or the equivalence of that, then it's kind of, it, this is one of the things that people always try to argue is like, where is it that the writer and the director kind of, where does their influence part? And maybe Rob Reiner is the type of director that he's just able to take, a fantastic script and materialize it rather than 
uh, than somebody that we would consider an auteur. Like Rob Reiner's not an auteur, yeah. I think is what we're trying to say, yeah. right? Yeah, and it's it's quite fascinating because um, he sort of just, after this point where he has basically just almost a, f- pretty much a flawless run through like, just runs the tables for about a decade, just disappears off the face of the map and just goes in, just, just, just nosedives. Like after that you have North, which is a, this is just a hugely panned film. Have you seen North? Why do I feel... Is that about a kid? Yeah, North is where Elijah Wood is yes. a kid who divorces his parents and then goes and seeks new parents in all of these kind of weird, zany situations. So, like, it's a... And it's it's full of, like, weird star cameos and Bruce Willis keeps showing up in each different place as, like, a different person, even though North recognizes him as the same person. And it's, like... And then it sort of creates this revolt where kids are then sort of like kids are controlling their parents because parents are worried that their kids are going to divorce them. Um, And it's a weird, weird movie. Plus, it also has some very awkward shit where um, Kathy Bates plays uh, an Eskimo and sort of slightly brown face. Um, It's very weird, zany movie that... um, I liked when I was a kid and have never rewatched because I realized that it is probably a terrible movie. Um, I remember my dad watching it with me and being really appalled by it. I honestly, um, I think I remember trailers from it or something like that. Yeah. And then you have kind of like what I think most people think of as like his last kind of like decent movie, which was The American President. Um, yeah, that was a decent movie. A lot of people like... Eh, I think it's fine. It's it's it's. I've seen it once. Never really had much of an interest in going back to it. I mean, it's but just it's kind of cute. Like, it's just kind of cute. Like there's no meat. There's no meat to it. The West Wing is what it says. Oh, you think? Oh yeah, it's definitely Sorkin's dry run for the West Wing. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence that three years after making the American President, he then ends up writing. He ends up making a TV show about the presidency. I know, but that's just kind of always his thing. He's just interested in behind the scenes shit, you know, like all of his stuff is, is just always behind I mean, I'm the scenes. I'm not saying shit. Like, like Aaron Sorkin sat there and thought, I'm going to see how this script works um, so that I can later make a TV show. About right, right. It. I just mean, it feels like him writing a pilot for the West Wing before he writes it. Right, you know? right, yeah. I mean, because he did that with, like, Sports Night, and then he did The Newsroom, and then he does yeah. Studio 60, and then, again, A Few Good Men is, like, a snapshot into behind the sort of, like, court-martialing yeah. or, like, uh, the JAG, the JAG shit, so. But just listen to this just long line of deeply mediocre, shitty movies. Uh, Ghosts of Mississippi, The Story of Us, Alex and Emma, Rumor Has It, The Bucket List, Flipped, The Magic of <laughs> Belle Isle, and So It Goes, Being Charlie, LBJ. See, I, I, and, I really like Rob Reiner as an actor. Oh, yeah, I like him as an actor a lot as well. Like when he, what's, what's I think he plays, God, it's recently, he plays like the ex-husband of someone. God, I want to say like Barbara Streisand or something like that. Like that's the kind of role I like. Like the he's older. He's very funny in The Wolf of Wall Street. Yes, he is. Uh, that's right. He is good in The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. No, I like. I honestly, I think he's just kind of. I forget sometimes that he's a director, and I think of him as more a producer now. It's just you know? so weird. He's more that like a basically manager. Rob Reiner was untouchable for like a decade and then has just just lost it and just like i don't i don't don't even know if i think i can think of a director who just so spectacularly fell off a cliff um uh, you know as much as that Mm. like 
you know, goes from just an unstoppable run to making to being like uh, a worst picture, worst director nominee at the Golden Raspberries, and then just basically never making another good movie again, aside from maybe the American President. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe he's just not. I mean, maybe our cultural sensibilities don't line up with what he how he views the world, you know, which kind of happens. Like maybe he just doesn't have like the cutting edge. Like, like he's not, he's not mean. He's not ironic. He's not self-referential. He's not like meta enough. Right. When he doesn't seem to, he doesn't also seem to work as a studio for hire guy. Cause you know, it's like something like rumor has it. He came in as like a studio hire guy and it didn't really, you know, and, and that didn't really pan out. Um, I mean, and then mostly like most of his films since then have kind of been more like indie films. Well, actually, no, he made the bucket list, which was, I think a pretty big financial success, but like, um, after that, it's just pretty much like indie films for the most part. Like he made a film about, it's also, it's really random stuff too. Like obviously he made like the LBJ biopic that nobody saw. He made a film, um, called shock and awe, which is about like the, um, uh, uh, about the cover up of, um, of uh wmds in the iraq war which again nobody's seen um he made he made this film that's i like like that's based off like his son i believe which is uh about um you know uh, a teenage drug addict uh it's a really weird set of films yeah i mean i like i said man I, i i remember rumor has it um I remember things like that, but I don't know anything about his filmography. Like I said, if you were to mention Rob Reiner to me, the first thing that I think of him as is producer. That's the first thing that pops into my mind. Pro- what I've also thought of him as an activist because he's always been very mm. vocal in terms of his political beliefs. But, I mean, it's just that weird thing where, you know, at a certain point I'm just kind of like – I, I think there's probably quite a few people out there who don't even know Rob Reiner still makes movies. I Well, I'm, I guess I would be one of them. Yeah. I know. I know. So what are your final thoughts right. on The Princess Bride? You liked it, but you hate the score. It's got a good sugary coating, but there's no depth to it. So what kind of Halloween candy would it be? <laughs> um, the kind where every so often I'm like, oh, yeah, um, try that again. That'll, that, that'd be interesting. And then I have it. I'm kind of like, yeah, that's fine. I don't need to eat that for a while. You know? It's, right. It's, I don't know, maybe a lion bar or something like that. That's a that's a British thing. Yeah, I do love me a lion bar, so I understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, that sounds good. It's I'm, like it's 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 good in the moment, and then you're kind of like, and then you don't think about it for another five years. Right, right. <laughs> um, I mean, this is I hadn't seen this in a few years, but this is one of those ones that I I still it warms my heart. It makes me happy. It was really lovely to revisit it. I will probably definitely watch it within the next year again. You know, just yeah. just because I won't. Because I won't think about it. It won't be like, oh, man, I really need to watch that movie. Like, there are certain movies where I'm like, oh, fuck, I haven't seen that in a long time. I need to watch it. It's more like, oh, I'm kind of tired. I've maybe had a shitty day or I'm kind of in a rut or whatever. I'm going to watch this happy movie that's going to make me feel good about life and love. and. Which is weirdly, that's kind of like what A Few Good Men is for me. It's like <laughs> I'll just be like, you know what? I'm just going to like – I'm now just going to like watch people be witty and competent at their job for like a couple of hours. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Fuck, now that you say that, I want to watch A Few Good Men because of precisely that. (laughs) But you know what? I feel that way about all of Aaron Sorkin's films or TV shows. Like, if I want to watch, like, how uh, a sketch comedy show is is orchestrated, a lot of people, they want to watch 30 Rock. Not me. I want to watch Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, you know? 
I, I will say actually, uh, just to uh, just to be fair, uh, as much as I do enjoy a few good men, I also hate the score of a few good men. So Rob Reiner, maybe he just has a thing of picking composers I don't like. Huh. Well, on that note, I'm gonna leave because I'm gonna go watch a few good men. No. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. What's the difference? We've got him. Take it away. It would take a miracle. Bye. It's a story of love. A tale of adventure. It's as real as the feelings you feel. I'm kissing again. Someday you may not mind so much. The Princess Bride. Not just your basic, average, everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, ho-hum fairy tale. Okay, so for the next episode, we are back to our Halloween special, which, you know, we've we've done two Halloween specials. The first one was a very uh, last-minute episode where we just basically rolled through a bunch of like Halloween movies we liked. I think last year's setup worked a lot better where we each picked a film and that we brought to the table. You picked Scream, I picked the Candyman. I think we had a very good discussion about it. So, Austin, what's your film for this year? So I'm gonna go with something I mean, it's a film that a lot of people in the film world or the film community talk about in loved, but I'm not sure that it got as big of a viewing in the English-speaking world, at least, among, like, broad, popular audiences. But I think it's a really fantastic horror film. Not in a slashery, scary, it's more of a suspenseful, psychological, thematic, moody kind of film. And it's, let the right one in, the original version. What is it, Swedish? Swedish? What, are you going to... You can make me read my movies, Austin. <laughs> hey, man, I haven't done like a an, a foreign film or an art house film in a long time. I figured I got to do something with subtitles at least. Well, Austin, because I feel like I feel like we got to stick to our our personas here. If you're gonna go like if you're gonna go highbrow, give me some some fucking like non English horror movie where you know it's about kind of like contemplating shit. I'm gonna have to go lowbrow. I'm gonna have to make. My choice, a movie about a giant killer pig. That's right. Oh, Jesus. We're going to watch Razorback. Oh, Jesus. Okay. I mean, this is good because this is one of those Australian films that you didn't pick but that you said you really liked. So this is like more of an education into Australian cinema for me. This is also like a film that's like it, – it, it has so many things that I really enjoy about like Australian horror, which is just – Random, insane, marauding men in giant cars that you're like, why did, why are these out there? You know, um, and then also just kind of like, uh, also is shot in the most sort of like ridiculously overstylized fashion. Um, it is a film that uh, quite possibly I think you might hate, um, but you know what? It will be a fun experience talking about it. I think it depends. Like I told you, I've been in a little bit of a rut right now. With I'm trying to get back. I've been behind on work, and I'm still kind of adjusting my sleeping patterns. All fucked. I think going back to California was like a delayed reaction. I was good for the first week, and then the last two weeks, I've just been kind of like, uh. I feel like Razorback might be one of those films that I will really enjoy in this psychological state where I find myself at the moment. It's it's basically somebody said, hey. Let's do Jaws, but instead of a shark, let's make it a pig. Yeah, I dig it, man. I'm down for it. And of course, it. The, the famous the famous thing with it is they built a, they, they 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 built a pig, and then um, Russell McKay was like, "No, no, no! It should be much, much bigger." And so they built this giant pig that they couldn't operate at all because it was just this giant unwieldy thing that they couldn't make move. Right. So that's huh. part of the charm of it. The Razorback is, is has to be somewhat sparingly used. <laughs> That's so ridiculous. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about it. Anyway, um, so uh, join us for our Halloween special. We will talk about Razorback and Let the Right One In. In the meantime, you can check out all of our past episodes on idigthismovie.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Um, And, yeah, uh, also... uh, you know, check out our Twitter page at I Dig This Movie. Um, you can check out my work at KierSewitt.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Kier, uh, at Breaking Point Flicks. Um, and you can see me post miserable photos about what my experiences are like watching Dallas Cowboys games. <laughs> yeah, and you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I tweet about politics, film, I don't know, adventures. Austin gets woke. Adventures, dating and tindering and bumbling, whatever, man. I don't know. I just like talk about shit. So hit me up. All right. Uh, Yeah, so we will see you next week for Halloween. Later. Later.